four, three, two, one. Boom, and we're live. Gentlemen, Sam, Majid, how are you? Good, thanks. Pleasure to meet you. Pleasure, Joe. Yeah. Thanks for uh, coming here. Yeah, I'm re- very happy to get you guys together. I mean, that was uh, I've been kind of looking to do this for at least two years, and finally it's arrived. What's been your yeah. ultimate goal? Like, what was it? Well, he, I mean, Maja is just a superstar that needs more exposure. I mean, he's like, like he should be running half of civilization. I mean, he's he's really a, that's a one of those quotable things you can put on the back of a book, isn't it? Yeah, it's a good one. Yeah, yeah but you should, shouldn't put that one. It has to be on the back of the book for sure. Definitely not on the front. People <laughs> read it and go, "Superstar." Fuck this yeah. guy. I, I can't blurb the book we wrote together, unfortunately. So, yeah, uh, that is an issue. You're too kind, yeah. Sam. Thank you. It's uh, it's very generous of you. Um. Are you are you are you suing the Southern Poverty Law Center? Is that what's going on? Yeah, uh, I in fact have an update for everybody because uh, you know we crowdfunded uh, a lot of the early costs for the case against the Southern Poverty what, Law Center. What did they do? What is it? What yeah, is it let based me back on? up a bit, please. Um, uh, once upon a time, uh, yours truly, a British Muslim uh, of Pakistani origin, was listed in the United Kingdom on the Thomson Reuters World Check database under a category red terrorism designation, while at the same time being listed across the Atlantic in the United States by the Southern Poverty Law Center as an anti-Muslim extremist. So I was both a Muslim terrorist and an anti-Muslim extremist, according to two separate lists. And of course, that speaks to some of the polarization in our times in how irrational this conversation around extremism, Islam, integration, Muslims in the West has become. I sued Thomson Reuters World Check, the database. This database is no joke. It's like HSBC and, and many, many other banks use this database uh, for background checks on whether clients can have a bank account with them. So as a result of, for example, Thomson Reuters and their database, uh, Quilliam, which is a counter-extremism organization I founded 10 years ago, had its bank account shut down in the United States because of the Thomson Reuters World Check database system that HSBC subscribes to. Anyway, we sued them. They paid damages. They issued an apology, and they uh, 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 took my name off this uh, terrorism designation list they have on their World Check database. Uh, Maja, I think you, maybe you should back up further and just give the, your kind of your short form bio in terms of why would you ever be on a terrorist sure, sure. watch list? I, 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 yeah. I'll, I'll do that. Um, but at the same time, the Southern Poverty Law Center had, had listed me, as I said, as an anti-Muslim extremist. So we are also uh, taking legal action uh, against them. And um, I, I will get to your point, but I think just want to say that the I've just uh, held a law firm on retainer, Claire Locke, and they were the ones that sued the Rolling Stone magazine for that college rape campus rape scandal. Mm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, successfully got uh, won that case. Claire Locke, which is uh, an announcement made here exclusively with you. No one else knows this yet. We have retained Claire Locke. Uh, they are writing to the Southern Poverty Law Center as we speak. Um, I think they've got wind of it, the Southern Poverty Law Center. As of, I think, either yesterday or the day before, they've removed the entire list that's been up there for two years. Oh, nice. They've removed the entire list, which also had Ayan Hirsi Ali on it. Um, and it's no longer available on their website. Now, is there logic that if you're a critic of Islam, of radical fundamentalist Islam, that you are somehow or another a racist extremist? So that's pretty much what they've said. If you criticize Islam, um, Ayan, myself, who have come from within the community, yes. have had that experience, that somehow that makes us anti-Muslim. Um, there are a number of logical errors involved in that logical leap. That they've made. Do they have any distinction? Is there, is there anything that they write that sort of points to why they would say that? Uh, one of them, honestly, the reasons they listed, one of them was that I had a, a bachelor party in a strip club. 
a year before I got married. That makes you an anti-Muslim extremist? That was one of the reasons listed. Why? Oh, the 9-11 hijackers weren't a strip, li- strip so, club on 9-10, right? So, <laughs> that was, that, that re- they really listed that? They actually listed that, which is part of the reason why we can prove malice, because what has that got to do with anything? That, but that doesn't, yeah, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So that, uh, was the, that was a primary reason? It was one of the three main reasons they what originally the listed. And another one was, again, false. Uh, they claimed that I had called for the criminalization of the face veil for Muslim women in the West, which wasn't true. I had called for a policy to be adopted where in banks and airports where you are not allowed to wear a motorcycle helmet, you also shouldn't be allowed to cover your face in the name of religion, which is very different to calling for the criminalization per se of the face veil. That's like saying you're not allowed to wear a motorcycle helmet in a bank, so I believe in the criminalization of motorcycle helmets. It's right. just absurd. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Um, so it was a mischaracterization of my um, opinion. The so article, that's two. Yep, and mm-hmm. the other one, uh, the, the, the reason they... I can't even remember. Because they kept changing their reasons. The actual website has been... Um, we've got the archive and, and it's been they've been changing it each time people have been pointing out the stupidity of their allegations so why do they exist what is the southern poverty law well, centers I mean this is a painful irony because if you roll back the clock now you know 20 or some odd years their reasons to exist were great I mean that this was the the flagship organization that was suing the KKK and mm-hmm. you know sovereign citizens and just the, the far right you know white nationalist Christian nationalist movements in the US and in in some cases to great effect and their and their concern obviously about you know extremist hate groups in the US was totally valid and i mean it was it became i mean now now that we see how morally confused they are people have been shining a light on them and they and they've they're this bloated organization that's been taking in way too much money and they i mean it's not it it suffers from other signs of of uh, corruption or, or conflicts of interest but Back in the day, you know, Morris Dees was, you know, bringing the KKK to court and bankrupting their various chapters, and that all, that looked fantastic. And now, the social justice warrior, moral panic, uh, moral stupidity virus has gotten into their brains, and they can't differentiate someone like Majid from a right-wing Christian neo-Nazi uh, hater of Islam, right, or hater of of, of you know people mm-hmm. from the Middle East. Uh, and and so it is with Ayan Hirsi Ali. And I mean, now, the, ironically, you're off the website. Now I'm on it. I think I'm on it in a in a far more transitory way. But the 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 article that was written about my podcast with Charles Murray by Vox hit the Southern Poverty Law Center Hate Watch page. And so there you had articles about neo-Nazi groups, articles about the Austin bomber, and then me and and my podcast with Charles Murray. I definitely want to talk about that, yeah. but I want to give people your background first. Sure. The yeah, reason yeah. why you were on the list in the UK in, in the first place had to do with your actual background. Mm, mm, mm. So, so I was born and raised in Essex in the United Kingdom, and I came of age in what I now refer to as the bad old days of racism in the United Kingdom. Much has changed since then for the good. But in those days, uh, there were uh, serious... Um, uh, 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 cases of violent racism that I faced, uh, hammer attacks, machete attacks by actual neo-Nazis. I mean, I've grown up, this is the irony of this Southern Poverty Law Center listing, I've grown up fighting neo-Nazis on the streets and they've been attacking me with hammers and machetes because of the color of my skin. And you've got a bunch of white guys in Alabama uh, designating me in the same breath as they would designate, designate these neo-Nazis. But that, when I grew up and having that experience being 
um, falsely arrested by Essex police on a number of occasions, profiled while the genocide in Bosnia was unfolding against Muslims in Bosnia. Um, I often say to an American audience when I'm speaking about this, we are now here with you on the West Coast in this beautiful new studio you have. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, and imagine a genocide was unfolding on the East Coast against a, a group of people with whom you identified, and even if it's just on a human level, human beings, but you know, even within that, a community identification would impact you in a way, for example, if you defined yourself as uh, Jewish and there was a genocide against Jews on the other side of this very continent, of this very country, how it would impact you on, on the West Coast. Um, well, Sarajevo, Sarajevo from London, it takes us less time to fly from London to Bosnia than it does from New York to LA. And so it really had a profound impact on Muslims across Europe when that genocide was unfolding. And, and things were never the same again. It radicalized an entire generation. Of course, ideology had a lot to do with that. But the anger originally came from the genocide. So at the age of 16, what with uh, the domestic racism and the uh, situation in, in Bosnia unfolding as it did, I joined uh, Hizb al-Tahrir, which is a, uh, a non-terrorist, still legal in America and in Britain and across Europe, uh, Islamist organization. It was the first of the global Islamist organizations that aspired to resurrect the notion of a caliphate, uh, which we've subsequently seen to a great damaging effect in the form of ISIS caliphate. Um, and uh, their method of coming to power was by infiltrating militaries in Muslim majority countries, uh, recruiting army officers, and then instigating military coups, whether that be in Turkey, in Pakistan, in Egypt, these are the countries they, they targeted. Um, and their aim would be to then, through the military coup, set up this caliphate, which would then be an expansionist caliphate uh, and would conquer the world. I mean, that's, it sounds crazy. That's what they believe. And that's what they're very, very serious and intent on bringing about. And now people, when I say that, believe me, because they've seen the ISIS experiment unfold. But I joined a group that sought to do that um, through non-terroristic means at the age of 16. I ended, ended up on the leadership of that organization in the UK. Uh, ended up co-founding that group in Pakistan in 1999, where I went, I left the UK, went to Pakistan, um, was among the first, the vanguard of British Pakistani members that went out there to set the group up. Uh, there've been about three or four uh, coup plots in Pakistan since, and army officers have been arrested for being members of this group, and, and many of them still in jail. Um, I spent a year in Pakistan, went back um, while studying for my degree in the University of London. I uh, would fly Monday, uh, would fly on Saturdays and Sundays to Copenhagen in Denmark. I co-founded the Danish-Pakistani chapter of this group. And then the third year of my degree, because I was doing law and Arabic, um, uh, resulted in me having to go to an Arab country for the language year. And so I chose Egypt. And uh, a day before the 9-11 attacks in 2001, I ended up in Egypt. I went to Alexandria, enrolled in the University of Alexandria, to study for the year of uh, Arabic language, which was the third year of my degree. Um, of course, 9-11 happened, and the climate changed, the security climate changed all over the world, something we didn't know about nor predicted. And on the 1st of uh, um, April 2002, my house in Alexandria was raided by the Egyptian state security. I was blindfolded. My hands were tied behind my back. I was then driven through the desert into Cairo to the dungeon, of the state security headquarters um, in a building known as, uh, as uh, Al-Jihaz, which was the main headquarters of Amin ad-Dawla, the internal state security. Uh, we were held in the dungeons there for four days and they electrocuted um, most of the prisoners that they had there, um, tortured them, interrogated them. On the fourth day, I was taken to a, a prison known as Mazra'a Torah uh, in Cairo, um, put into solitary confinement for about three and a half months. 
then charged, eventually sentenced to five years as a political prisoner under the Egyptian emergency law um, and served my full sentence there in Egypt, uh, eventually left prison in 2006 and returned to the UK. So, so did, did Amnesty International get you out at all? Or they just no, they only took ca- an interest in you. So they you campaigned for my release. And right. nobody got me out because I had to finish my full prison sentence. Right. Um, but at, what changed me and, and led to me to be the man that sits before you today is you're right, Sam. Uh, Amnesty's uh, adoption of me and, and, and a few others in the case as prisoners of conscience. And they took the very brave and bold step now looking back at it because. Keep in mind the context there. This is Bush was president, Tony Blair was prime minister, and we were in the thick of the war on terror. We were in the middle of it. And Amnesty comes along and says, we disagree with everything this guy stands for, but they don't believe in using violence to bring their caliphate about. And so we will defend their right to say stupid things. And they shouldn't be in prison. They certainly shouldn't have been tortured for it. So um, Amnesty adopted us as prisoners of conscience. And I was 24 years old at the time, by the way. So everything I've just described to you happened to me up until the age of 24 when I was imprisoned. And it was the first time in my relatively young life, I'm 40 now, right? And uh, I had never been defended by any mainstream, pillar of mainstream society in that way before. Nobody had spoken out for me. And that had a a real huge kind of emotional impact on my psyche. Um, I've said in my um, autobiography that where the heart leads, the mind can follow. And so I was now willing to consider alternatives because of Amnesty's work campaigning for me. And so I spent the next four years in prison uh, reading, uh, rereading Orwell, uh, every one of his uh, books, reading Tolkien, reading classic English literature, studying Islamic theology, really trying to understand the world around me. Um, and I had four years to do so. And I spent four years debating and discussing with um, pretty much the founders of Egypt's main jihadist organizations who were in jail with me in this same prison, including the assassins of the former president, Anwar Sadat, who had been killed in 1981 because of his peace deal with Israel. And his assassins were in jail with me. And they'd been in prison longer than I'd been alive. And so they had some collective years of wisdom between them. And most of those jihadist prisoners I was in jail with had over the course of those years, two decades and more, changed their views and reformed. They were still conservative religious Muslims, something which I'm not um, and I never, I don't claim to be in my in my work at the moment. Um, but they were still religious Muslims, but they were no longer um, extremists, and they were no longer what I call Islamists, people that sought to implement their version of Islam over society. And so they, uh, in four years of constant debate and discussion with them, um, people that I knew had more wisdom than me. They've been in jail for longer than I've been alive. Um, I, my views began slowly changing. I read a lot of the books they wrote about changing their own views and why they changed. And uh, upon my release, uh, I, I, I eventually, a good few months after my release, I, I had to leave the organization because I no longer believed in an ideology that I was once prepared to die for. That is fascinating that the shift came about in jail speaking with assassins. Yeah, among many others, yeah. That, I mean, yeah. that is really incredible. You would think that most people think that when someone goes to jail, usually whatever criminality that they have in them is cemented and, yeah. and hardened. Yeah. I'm, I, I don't know why mine is an exceptional case because most people you're right whether you look at Said Qutb who's known as the founding father of modern day jihadism he started off like me a non-terrorist Islamist but in Egypt's jails in fact the very jail I was held in he was tortured and he ended up becoming the godfather of modern day terrorism um, through his book Milestones or Ma'alim Fatriq in, in Arabic and yet that in my case for whatever reason you know it I kind of went that bit further to question everything I believed in. 
Um, but that's not normal. Mo in most cases, when you torture people in jail, it, it ends up hardening and ossifying that ideology and people become as angry as, you know, they become the monster that they were seeking to defeat. So you get out of jail. What do you do then? So I, I uh, left the group in 2007 and by 2008 in January, so I finished my degree. I had one year left of my undergraduate degree. I, I graduated. I did my master's at the London School of Economics in political theory. And while doing the master's, set up Quilliam. And Quilliam, uh, we, we bill as the world's first counter-extremism organization. It was meant to be, uh, we believe it is, bringing us back to the SPLC's allegation, a Muslim response to extremism from people that have lived it, been through it, um, my co-founders were Islamists themselves who changed like me. Uh, Muslims, born and raised, uh, come from the community to have a community-based response, a Muslim response to this growing problem of extremism. And this was 10 years ago. And of course, ISIS emerged since then, only demonstrating why this kind of response was needed. And so for the Southern Poverty Law Center to designate somebody with my background, with that trajectory, with somebody who was prepared to die for this cause, um, uh, and so somebody who wanted to address these problems as a Muslim uh, to call for reform for the good of my communities as opposed to against them. You know, at the end of the day, it can only benefit Muslim communities if extremism is put back in its box. Um, for them to then list someone like me as an anti-Muslim extremist, it, it just really does, I think, shine a light on the true absurdity of the situation we find ourselves in. Uh, absurdity and the, the lack of real investigation mm. or backing up their claims with actual facts yeah. and information. And that brings me to your story with Charles Murray and Vox yeah. and Ezra Klein. Well, well, let's linger here for a moment. Sure. It's the same problem, but not only is it a lack of investigation, but when it gets pointed out, I mean, I forgot the, the guy's name at the SPLC who was quarterback in this, but it wasn't Morris Dees, but it was someone high up. Uh, Mark uh, Podek? Or the, 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 the CEO... Uh, Something Cohen, I think, is the. But, uh, it's, yeah. I thought it was Mark. Anyways, he's listed in the. He's named in the Atlantic article that first put this on our radar. Yeah. But he, they just double down. I mean, the, the, the error cannot be pointed out clearly enough to trigger. I mean, much less an apology. A, a any modulation of of the claim. They just people just double down in the face of obvious counter evidence, and that's. It's it's just not about. A sincere engagement with the problem, and there's and there's this. I mean, there's so many variables here that make it make it a really toxic environment. But one is that the 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 locus of concern is never the individual; it is the group, it's the tribe, and so you can. It's like they'll sacrifice any number of individuals to make the political case they want to make. Uh, so they they don't they're completely unrepentant when they're shown to get it wrong and so in, in your case and in Ion's case, it's just such a such a grievous moral lapse because not only is it is the attack on you illegitimate, it actually raises your your security concerns mm -hmm. and it 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 becomes a reference point for journalists who are confused, who can't follow the plot or don't have the time to to fact check everything. It makes you radioactive from the point of view of mainstream journalists because either they, they go to the Southern Poverty Law Center site to figure out who's worth talking to, and they see a page where you're listed as an anti-Muslim extremist along with people who bear very little resemblance to you ideologically because there are probably a few people on there who, who could be described as anti-Muslim extremists. And you know the, here are the 10 people you don't need to talk to on, about this problem, whereas you're actually – 
one of the most valuable voices, I mean, objectively, uh, one of the most valuable voices, but probably, you know, I can probably count on two fingers, you know, uh, you know anyone who would rival your voice on this topic. Uh, so it's, it's just mind-boggling. It's very difficult. Try to keep this mic close to you. Yeah, it's very difficult. You, you can swing it toward yeah, I can swing it. To, so it's very difficult because um, I, can't ex- I can't fully explain to anybody what it feels like to have lived an entire life from roughly the age of 14 being consumed by this issue of Muslims in the West and this question and originally getting it, answering it in one way and then still being consumed by the topic, answering it in a different way as I now do. I can't describe to anybody how much emotionally the toll that it takes to have your whole life, have defined your whole life by trying to answer this question and because you care for it because this is a question that concerns you. When I joined the Islamist group, I did. I was wrong and adopted some really nefarious ideas, but did so because I gave a damn and cared for a genocide that I saw unfolding and desperately wanted a solution. So even when I became an Islamist, I did so out of care and love and concern for what I believed was my community under attack. So to have a bunch of people come along and say that I am anti the very community that I believe of, I have fought for all my life, you know, and have def- and my life has been consumed and defined by this. It really is taking the one thing away from somebody that they have. I mean, I, I went to jail for this thing. I, yeah. People have died in front of my eyes from their torture wounds in prison because of this thing. To have someone completely ignorant in that way, to, to, to deprive me of having the, of being able to claim that I have stood for my community but by instead saying that I'm anti that community, it really does kind of make you feel like crap, Joe. <laughs> what, you know? When did this start happening? This the moral panic that you've constantly discussed, and the, mm. these, the flippant sort of accusations without real any real solid objective reasoning behind calling someone like you or Ayan Hirsi Ali, who's the victim of female genital mutilation mm. to say that she's an anti-Muslim, that, that she's Islamophobic, mm. is yeah. it seems to me, it's almost insane, but it seems to me to be prevalent. This is something that is a, it's, it's a common sentiment today that I don't recall ever seeing anything like this one or two decades ago. Yeah. yeah I, I, I don't know. I mean, you might have a better sense than it. I do, but I, I don't, it's become increasingly salient to me just because I've been doing this work for better or worse and colliding with these people more and more. But uh, it, it's it's definitely an export from some trends in intellectual life that go back, you know, 50 years or more. I mean, it was, so what postmodernism did, mm-hmm. and I mean, you can go back further than that. It's just that there, there's, a, there's a, a framework, a kind of pseudo-intellectual framework where facts – can't be talked about as facts. They're they're intrinsically political. They intrinsically convey power disparities. Um, you know, science is just a tool of power, sort of thinking. And this goes back a ways, but it is it's now seemingly ascendant on the left in a way that is is just fairly bewildering. About but it seems to be only two subjects: gender and race. Those are but, the ones that get. Those are the big ones. I, th- I think it's. I'm sure we could find more if we take a, a minute to think about it. But there, those are, those are, uh, those certainly dwarf every other. Those are the ones where there's a wall. There's I a mean, wall that you can't get through with objective reason. Gender, but th- this isn't quite race. This is 
the, I mean, it, it's drawing a lot of energy f- from, from racism. Con- concerns about yeah. racism. But Identity. It, it's, yes. It's a, the perception is, is that Muslims are a politically beleaguered minority that have to be so it is like it is a rate i mean people think there's you know it's it's racist to criticize islam as though that made any sense i mean you know Mm -hmm. ben affleck being one uh but it is you know this is they're a minority in los angeles they're not a minority they're the second biggest religion on earth this is it we're talking about 1.7 billion people and they're and the criticism of muslim extremism for the most part is focused on societies where you have, a, in most cases, a majority Muslim population. You have women and gays and and free thinkers treated terribly, and that's that. That is the, you know, the center of the bullseye in terms of you know what what one is criticizing when one talks about you know theocracy. So I uh, th- there was a lot of this stuff, this um this um paranoia, this kind of uh, irrational approach to this conversation that Sam suffered from and. When 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 I first met him, uh, I met Sam in New York mm. at the Intelligence Squared debate that he that so Ayan Hirsi and Douglas Murray, who I believe you've had yes. on this yeah. podcast, were on one side of a, a debate. I was on the other side of this debate, and the motion that we were debating was Islam is a religion of peace. I was back then arguing um, what half of my true belief is because I actually don't believe it's a religion of peace or war. It's just a religion that is interpreted in different ways. But I had to pick a side, and so I picked that side in defending the motion and, and Ayan and, and Douglas were on the other side. And there was a there was a dinner afterwards for the speakers and Sam was there. I imagine you were there as Ayan's guest. Yeah. Yeah. Um and <laughs> so it's my that fault. Went well, yeah. I, I didn't know who he was. Um and Ayan and I were locked in conversation, post debate conversation, and uh uh Ayan invited Sam to to have his say and she said, I want to hear what Sam Harris has to say. And so, Sam, so, so, but the context is relevant. So we're at. So we, they've had a, a public. Have you seen these Intelligence Squared debates that are they're very well produced online? I, I don't know that they're televised anywhere, but they're online. They're, they they get a great theater in Manhattan, and you know, it's an audience of maybe a thousand people. And they and John Donvan, the the journalist, is the the impresario. And but then this, this was a dinner afterwards for the organizers and the participants. But there, there may be seventy people in a you know the the back room of a restaurant. And Majid and I were not at the same table, uh, thankfully. Yeah. We were like 50 feet away from each other, but facing each other. And uh, so he was at the table with Ayan and the other speakers. And at one point, they're, they're, everyone's getting debriefed about how this went. And Ayan says, well, I, I, Sam Harris is here. I'd like to, to hear what he has to say about the debate. And so I look at Majid, and yeah. he's, he's at least 50 feet away from me. And... Um, uh, I mean, did you want me to say what yeah, I said? Yeah, to you go for it. Yeah, okay. please, yeah. Okay. So, I mean, so he had made moves in this debate that I considered intellectually dishonest, and and I mean, because he, he's he's playing a game, and this is not a real conversation. This is a formal, academic style debate where, you know, his job is not to leave his view open to influence by the other discussants. He's he's making a case. Um, uh, and I, I didn't know it at the time, but he felt unnaturally constrained by the format of the debate. He had to argue that Islam is a religion of peace, and some of the moves he made there I, I thought were dishonest. And so I said, um, uh, Majid, uh, and I remember this more or less verbatim because w- we talked about it and we've since you know, transcribed it into a book, but um, I said, Majid, you know, everyone in this room recognizes that you have the hardest job in the world, and we're all very glad that you're doing it. You have to uh, somehow convince the next generation of Muslims that 
Islam really is a religion of peace, and that jihad is just an inner spiritual struggle, and that you know, martyrs don't get 72 virgins in paradise and all the rest. And so my question for you is, is this, do you really believe that, that, it, that this is the case now, or do you, do you think that pretending that is, the, that is the case is the method by which you'll make it the case? That if you just pretend long enough and hard enough, it'll become so. And the extra uh, line here was, and can you just be honest with yeah, us yeah, in the yeah, privacy yeah. of this so, room? I, I, my final sentence <clears> was, and you know, you know, we're not on, we're not televised now. Can you just be honest with us here? And uh, so, the <laughs> so I responded immediately and said, are you calling me a liar? And uh, so now there's like 70, we have now 70 people and I'm like into my second gin and tonic. <laughs> and, and, and he's given me the, the sort of, you know, uh, Middle Eastern stare down across, across, across you know. And, so it's and like, he repeated it. He said, no, no, I'm asking you just here that where there's no cameras. Can you just be honest with us? And I said, are you calling me a liar? And it didn't go too well at all. The entire, everyone on the table kind of went quiet. And, uh, and I didn't know who this guy was. I, I, I never met him. And, and I should have known who he was. And, uh, and, and then I think somebody uh, very tactfully changed the conversation and just completely veered off this. And I'd, I'd never, I'd, I never spoke to him again for another, what was it? A couple of years. A couple yeah. of years. I'd, we'd never crossed paths since then. And the reason I bring this up is that I was one of those guys that didn't want to entertain a conversation with Sam uh, based upon the defensiveness when it came to this topic. And, and I think that actually it's important to say that to people that because you asked him a question about the Charles Murray situation. A lot of people, rather than actually wanting to engage with someone on the substance of their ideas, that I think in the climate we're in today, they're engaging with people based upon their on their feelings. And yeah. those feelings are valid, of course. Everyone has the right to their feelings. But we've got to try as hard as we can to detach those feelings from, because that's clearly not what the, you know, if the principle of charity means, you lend the person that you're speaking to the best possible interpretation of what they're saying, and, and, and allow them to clarify what they mean as opposed to you putting into their mouths what, what they mean and telling mm -hmm. them what they mean. I learned that, you know, because then two years later, he reaches out to me and he says, I think we can try again. You know, are you willing to have a conversation with me? And, and I hadn't originally remembered it was the same guy. <laughs> So oh, that's fine. Yeah, I got my foot in the door just because you didn't know who I was. Because I didn't. Really, <laughs> and then we had this conversation, which it's a lesson for me because we had this conversation. Uh, it's 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 called Islam and the Future of Tolerance. It's it's become a book, right? Published by Harvard University Press. We had this conversation that became a book that's been made into a film, which I think any well, couple of weeks now we hear some news on that. Yeah, I don't know um, when that's coming out, but yeah. the, the, so we did a a lecture tour of Australia, and the people who organized that made a documentary that we. But therein lies this lesson to your question, and, and, and that is that I am somebody that didn't engage with him on the substance of his question, but actually mm. fired a misfire, an emotional misfire on, 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 on what was really questioning and, uh, his motives for asking the question rather than actually addressing, addressing the points he was making. And I think that when I, because I didn't remember who he was, I then started the conversation anew uh, without the memory of my original judgment on him. Mm. And the conversation went really well. <laughs> so we've got to somehow be able to divorce ourselves from that background. That can happen. I mean, it can be done. It's just, it, it takes people of strong character to, to try to like abandon all preconceived notions from the mm. past conversation, just start mm. fresh. Yeah. I, unfortunately, this example of, of a kind of a signal success has, has caused me to in the end, kind of misspend a lot of energy just assuming that Trying I can do to this again. It. I keep thinking, yeah. I, I keep walking into another situation thinking this is possible. Is that why you deleted and, Twitter? Well, I, yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> off my phone, yes. 
Um, so you haven't deleted your account? Have you? No, Just I'm a- still on Twitter, but I I, I will, uh, based on this recent episode, I will I use it differently. I am fascinated by people and their struggles with social media, yeah. with like de- detaching from it, reattaching from it getting addicted to it. I mean, I know so many people that will look at their Twitter at like one o'clock in the morning before they go to bed and something pisses them off and then they can't sleep. Yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah. Well, it's really common. I, I was not, I, I, I don't consider myself someone who had a, a, a real pathology with it. I mean, I was, you know, I, I have, you know, I don't know, 6,000 tweets or 7,000 tweets over the course of over the many years. Um, so I'm not, I was not tweeting that much. I was not even looking that much. I was I was fairly uh, disengaged, and I've never used Facebook as a. I've never. I just use Facebook as kind of a publishing channel. I never engage with comments, but I was looking enough, and it it was. I mean, one it was clearly making me a worse person. I mean, I just it was I was I was reacting to stuff that I didn't need to react to, and it was amplifying certain criticisms and and voices. Which need not have been amplified, and in this in this last case, it just turned a, I mean, it just it created a, a, a huge kind of a, a explosion in my life. I was in the middle of a vacation, which I basically torpedoed mm. because of what I saw on Twitter. I mean, it was just it was like the the perfect infomercial for why you don't want to be engaged. You with torpedoed your vacation how? Well, so I'm in the middle of like the first vacation I've taken with my family for in a very long time. It was at least a year, and wow. And we're, so I, we're you know we're on Hawaii, and just like I'm supposed to put everything down to be the best father and husband I can be, right? And, and that was my intention. That's what was happening. Uh, it happened for a good solid 24 hours, <laughs> <laughs> and and then I pick up my phone and I see that that Reza Aslan and Glenn Greenwald and Ezra Klein. Had all attacked me in the space of an hour. Oh right? no! And so now, this is like now. So this goes out to millions of people. And, and is I, this over the what he was also was asking about the Charles Murray thing? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, truth is, I can't even see what I, I didn't look at what Greenwald had done. Um, he was circulating somebody's video about me. How I'm? I think I'm a racist in that video. Rez Aslan blocks me, so I can't even see what if he attacks me by name, but he blocks me, so, yeah. they, so I can't even see what his That's his export. But uh, so I, I so, but I just saw the the aftermath of that. You know, lots of stuff. You know, lots of notifications coming to me with both of us tagged. Um, and then Ezra published this. I, mean, I, I suppose I should back up, uh, however painfully, to to describe what happened here. But so I had Charles Murray on my podcast a year ago, and Charles Murray is this this um, social scientist who uh, published the Bell Curve back in the '90s, which it was a a book about IQ and and success in in Western societies like our own. And uh, uh, it's a book where he worries a lot about the the cognitive stratification of society. We have a society that is selecting more and more for a narrow band of of talents that are very fairly well captured by what we call IQ. And it's a kind of winner-take-all situation where people are really, you know, 500 years ago, if you had a a very high IQ, and you're, you're just pushing a plow next to your neighbor, you had no real advantage. But now you can start a hedge fund, or you can start a software company, and we're, we're seeing the, this this real uh, shocking disparity <clears throat> in, in uh, good fortune, really. Uh, so uh, he wrote this book. It had a, a chapter on race, which talked about the disparities in, in, in racial uh, groups. Uh, the statistically it, observed yeah, disparities. Right. Yeah. And uh, the claim about the source of those disparities was by 
even the standards of the time, but certainly the, the standards of today, an incredibly tepid, mealy-mouthed, just hand-waving. It was not this, you know, here comes the Third Reich declaration of, of white supremacy. It was undoubtedly there are environmental and genetic reasons for this, and we don't understand them. You know, it was just, it was just like to, to think that it's one or the other. We're not in a position to know what the mix is of, of, of influences now. Um, and that is uh, virtually any honest scientist's take on the matter. Um, and to, certainly today, I mean, it's, it's only become more so. Uh, but that went off like a nuclear bomb. I mean, that was just, that was such a, um, uh, I mean, it's, it's the most, um, I, so at, and at the time, I never read the book. I just thought this had mm. to be just racist and Of course, poison. Charles Murray would be vilified for... For that observation. And he, he's yeah. been vilified ever since, and ever mm. since, you know, I've ignored him. Wasn't he deplatformed and mm. assaulted recently? Yeah, so that's what happened. Yeah. So, so he went to Middlebury to give a talk, you know, 20 uh, some odd years, 25 years after he wrote this book. Oh, by and the way, he's also listed by the Southern Poverty Law Center. Uh, oh. And so that, that, that's what contributed to the deplatforming and the violent protest against him at Middlebury. What's crazy right. is the whole thing is a propaganda for the superiority of the Asian race, and everyone's yeah. missing that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's the flip side of it. Yeah. Yeah. Like, They're all talking about white supremacy. And Asian it says Asians are actually are ones with... far and above. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's basically what his book proved. And you know, they're suing Harvard now. There's a group right. of Asian students that are su suing Harvard because they're discriminated against yeah. because they're required to have higher scores yeah. because they're assumed to be smarter. So wow. the standards for Asian students entering into Harvard is higher than white people. Wow. Yes. Well, Asian privilege. It's a, it's a big problem. <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah. Uh, your your grandfather was working on the railroads in California as an, an indentured servant, and, and yeah. uh, all that privilege trickled down. There's obviously a lot of factors that lead to IQ, to, to high IQ, but to ignore what those are, to ignore it completely, to just bury in the name your head of in the, in the name of ideology. Of course, yes, exactly. It, yeah. Only yeah. ideology, yeah. and this idea that you cannot look at statistics, you cannot look at facts. Mm. And w in your conversation with Ezra Charles, that's what or Ezra Klein rather, that's what I got is that this is. This is an ideological issue and that you you it's almost like an impossible subject to breach. Yeah. Like you can't even discuss the fact that certain races demonstrate low IQ. And then let's look at what could be the cause of those. Even discussing that somehow or another is so inherently racist that it must be ignored or must be silenced and that you you must first concentrate on all the various injustices that have been done to those people who have this lower IQ. Yeah. Well, let me just take a couple of minutes to close the various doors to hell that are now ajar based on what we've just said. Uh, so, so you were on your holiday yeah. and you get all oh, these notes. Yeah. So, so we'll just take a little more context. So, so yeah, as you said, Charles Murray went to Middlebury College and was deplatformed. And he was not only deplatformed, so the usual deplatforming with mm. the students turning their back to the speaker yeah. and shouting and not letting anything happen. But the professor who invited him, who was a liberal professor who wanted to essentially debate him. She was wanted, attacked. Yeah, yeah. When they're leaving the hall... They both get physically attacked by a, 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 a crowd of students. Charles was, was not hurt. His host, uh, this female professor, got a concussion and a neck injury that, that still persists. And this is now more than a year later. So it's like she, she was I think she's a registered Democrat. By this. No <laughs> doubt. And, and they're driving out in an SUV where that gets – I mean someone pulls a, a stop sign out of the, the, the sidewalk and it's still got the concrete ball on the end of it. And the, this SUV gets smashed with this you know, concrete-laden stop sign. I mean this, was, this is happening at one of the most liberal, privileged colleges on earth. Uh, it's nuts. 
So anyway, that was the thing that put Murray on my radar after all these many years of my ignoring him. And I had actually, and I felt guilty because I had declined to be a part of at least one project because his name was attached, right? Because I just thought that this guy's radioactive. He's he's got some white supremacist agenda. I had believed the the the, the lies about him. Uh, and then I saw this, and I thought, okay, well, maybe he's the canary in the coal mine, or, or certainly one of the canaries in the coal mine that I had ignored, where, the, as you say, there are these certain topics are considered so politically fraught that you cannot discuss them no matter what is true. Like, mm-hmm. uh, it's like it's just a, you know, uh, there has to be a firewall between your conversation about reality and these sorts of facts. Uh, and so, you know, so he's been... You know, suffering from having transgressed that boundary, and so I had him on the on the podcast, uh, being fairly agnostic about his his actual social policy commitments and his political uh, concerns, and just wanting to talk about uh, you know the the facts insofar as we touch them lightly. I mean, I had zero interest in intelligence as measured by IQ. Uh, although, I mean, it's an interesting subject, but I hadn't, you know, I hadn't spent much time focused on that. And I had uh, truly zero interest in establishing differences between populations with respect to intelligence or anything else. But I see what's coming. I see the fact that that the, the more we understand ourselves genetically and environmentally, the more we will, if we go looking, or even if we're not looking, we will discover differences between groups. And the end game for us as a species is not to deny that those differences exist or could possibly exist. It's to deny that they have real political implication. I mean, the, the, the political impl- the, the political framework we need is a commitment to to equality across the board and a, a commitment to treating individuals as individuals. There's nobody who's a, the, the average of a population is meaningless with respect to you. Mm. And that will always be so. And um, and whatever you know, and, and whatever diversity of talents there is statistically in various populations, we want societies that simply don't care politically about that. I mean, that, that's just it's just not what it's the our, our political tolerance of one another and support of one another is not predicated on denying individual differences or even statistical differences across groups. It can't be because we know that there are people walking around like, uh, you know, Elon Musk, who gets out of bed in the, every morning and does the work of like 4,000 people, right? And people who just are, are struggling to work at Starbucks and hold down a job. And our political system, I mean, this, we, we don't say one person is more valuable politically and socially than another, even though one person is capable of doing massive things that that that, that uh, many most other people aren't. It's you know when it comes time to to write laws and create institutions that protect that that support human flourishing, we we have to engineer tides that raise all the boats. And so you know and and you know there are legitimate debates about the social policies that will do that, but and there are legitimate debates about facts. So we can debate scientific fact. And and you know the the results of you know psychometric testing or or behavioral genetics that are relevant to this question of intelligence, uh, and we can have a good faith debate about the data, and then we can have a good faith debate about social policy that should follow from the data. But what's happening on the left now is 
on either at either of those tiers of conversation, there are just straight up allegations of of, of racism that hit you the <clears> moment <throat> you touch certain uh, certain can, facts. Can I, I say that, that that what he's just summarized there, what I've heard, um, sounds to me as uh, being more humane than the implications of the argument that the left who are opposing what Sam has just said are. Because if you think about it, the implications of their argument would be they, they want to deny the facts because they're scared that those facts would, from which there would be derived a policy that would reflect those facts. In other words, in their minds, they are marrying those two. They are marrying the notion that if in statistical observance there are variances in IQs between groups, in their minds, that means the policy should follow from that. So it's why they're resisting what he's saying, whereas what he's saying is there is no connection between what the policy should be and what the facts may be because of the kind of world we want to live in uh, should aspire to equality regardless of what the science is saying because one is policy and one is science. I freely agree with you on that, but I don't think that's necessarily exactly what they're saying. Well, I think what they're saying is, and what they're doing is, they almost feel so guilty that any discussion whatsoever about race can't be held unless you repeatedly bring up all the instances of racism and suppression that and discrimination that that group has suffered from. It's mm. like you can't; it doesn't st exist as a statistic island. You, no. you you have to bring everything in together. If you don't do that, that's where their protest comes from. And I think that was one of the things that I got from your conversation with mm. Ezra Klein. He right. wasn't willing to just discuss what's the implication of these issues and completely dismiss this this fact that Asian people score far better. They're, yeah. they're, it's, it's not a, this is not an but it's almost as if they supremacy. fear that by by conceding on the data it's almost as if they fear that the implication must necessarily follow that the policy will also be supremacist in that way mm, I wonder um, I honestly think that what we talked about before is a big part of it this mm. is ideological uh, mm. idea sport and that they're just volleying back I don't think they're willing to take I think one of the real strengths of character that you demonstrate in a debate or any discussion of facts is when uncomfortable truths rear their ugly head that are counter to your uh, your personal position you have yeah. to be able to go you got a really good point mm. you've got yeah. a good point there's mm. something to that i see what you're saying okay this is what my concern would be and th this would be a rational real conversation yeah. this is what i would worry about and then you would i'm sure say absolutely i would worry about that as well and then you would have this sort of a discussion i didn't yeah. get that from that no. conversation you no, had yeah. i got Ping pong. I got boop, 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 boop. Mm. I got this rallying back and forth of ideas rather than two human beings not digging their heels into the sand, just trying to look at the ideas and look at the statistics and look at these studies for what they are. Mm. And look at Charles Murray and what he's gone through. And should we be able to examine these statistical anomalies? Should be able to examine athletic superiority? Should we be able to examine uh, superiority that uh, Asians show in mathematics and a lot of the sciences? Should we? Should we be able to? Or should we just dig our heads in the sand? Should we just let things sort themselves out and quietly ignore all the reality? Yeah. I don't yeah. know. Well, so I should say that I am, I, I certainly understand people's fear that if you that anyone who would go looking for racial difference is very likely motivated motivated by something unethical or unsavory, right? So like like you you could imagine you know white supremacists being being super enamored of this the possibility that these data they exist. Are. Yes, and they are. Yes, and well, so until and, they look at the Asian statistics, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, so 
So that's I, I get that right, and there is there's some things that, and this is, this was a question I had for Charles Murray on the, on that podcast. I said like like why pay attention to any of this? What is the upside? I mean, in the in the infinity of of interesting problems we can tackle scientifically, why focus on population differences? And you know, frankly, I, I didn't get a great answer from him. I mean, his what did answer say? his answer his answer is well, I think the best version of his answer. Which I agree with, but still, it may not justify certain certain uses of attention. It's just that if you th- there's this massive bias that um, basically we're all working with a blank slate you know, genetically, and therefore any difference you see among people is a matter of, of environment. And so, so then you have people who have privileged environments and people who have environments that that um, uh, where they're they're massively under resourced, and so therefore any different representation at the you know the higher echelons of success and achievement and power in our society, uh, you know if there's 13 percent African Americans in the U.S., if you look at the top doctors in hospitals or the top academics or the um, you know the Oscar winners or wherever you know wherever you want to look for 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 achievement. If there are less than 13% African Americans in any one of those bins, that has to be the result of, of racism or sy- systemic racism. Um, that is the left, the leftward bias at this moment, and it, and so it is with Jews for anti-Semitism. So it is for women. Um, you know, there should be a, an equal representation of, of women. Uh, you know, computer software engineers at Google. Um, and any lack of any disparity there must be the result of either uh, just inequitable resources for you know kids in schools or or somewhere along the way, or um, a, a kind of a selection pressure from the top that you know we you know we don't like women in at Google or uh, blacks at the Oscars, and so that's the so Murray's concern is if you believe that. And I'm, you know, this, this is not exactly what he said, but this is this is what I believe he thinks. But I, I could be putting some words into his mouth here. But this is certainly what many other people on his side of the debate think. If you believe that, you will con- consistently find racial bias and anti-Semitism and misogyny where it doesn't exist, right? So, like, if you if you go looking, if you go to a mm-hmm. hospital, and, th- and this is a real problem, they're like like you know, the academic departments in the medical schools, at the best medical schools, are under massive pressure. To find like r- real diversity in representation at the highest level, you need to find a, a, t- a head of cardiology who's black, right? Um, and if you and you and the fact that you haven't done that is a sign that there's a problem with you and your organization and your process of hiring. Now, if it's just the case for whatever reason that there are not many candidates, like less than thirteen percent, for that field. Or to take the you know the James Damore memo at Google, right? If it just is the case that women forget about this is this is beyond aptitude. This just goes to interest. If it's the case that women, for whatever reason, genetic or environmental, are less interested in being software engineers on average than men are, then you then having you know twenty percent women coding software at Google is not the pro, it's not Google's problem. It's just the fact that this is the, the popu- what the population I, interests are. Now, we should – no doubt racism still yeah. exists. No doubt misogyny and sexism still exists. 
there are, there are I mean, there, and there's proof of this to be found as well. But if to assume an absolute uniformity of human of interest and aptitude in every population you could look at is just scientifically irrational. That would be a miracle if that were so, the case. So, so at this stage, uh, allow me to remind everybody, that was Sam summarizing what he thinks Charles Murray was saying right. as opposed to Sam. Well, no, no, but, summarizing I, no, his, but no, my, you, my, that, but fi- that final point yeah, is, is, yeah. is just a, a true point. That yeah, like yeah, their yeah. genes, almost everything we care about are massively influenced by genes. Not well, 100%, Often but, what I've but seen happen lot. to you, though, is that yeah. people have taken your summaries of other people's right. stances yes. and attributed those to But that necessarily wasn't you. even necessarily Charles Murray's yeah. position. You, it's your summary of his position in relationship to this, uh, this fight against yes. it. Yeah. The, the, the thing that yeah. I would add, and the thing where there's some daylight between the two, uh, me and him, uh, on my podcast, is this is so toxic to be trafficking in population differences with respect to IQ that and and it's not it's not absolutely clear what social policies turn on really nailing down these differences i mean you, so you could go i mean to take an even more toxic exa- example perhaps it's like you could decide uh, you know the Roma in Europe, the, the gypsies. You know, like this is like a, a very isolated, beleaguered, you know, community. Who, who knows how inbred it is? I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's just this is a this is an outlier community. Like anyone who's going to want to do you know massive IQ testing on the Roma, what's the what's the point of doing that? Right? Like you know, it's like you're. It, it seems like a just a a kind of political time bomb to devote resources in that way because we know that the policy you want whatever any whatever the the mean IQ is of any group the policy you want is to give everyone whatever opportunities they can avail themselves of so we want we want people to have the best schools they can use and then we'll find people who need to be in in more remedial schools for whatever reason or you know people who like you know there'll be one population that has Ten times the amount of dyslexia than another population, say, and there'll be undoubtedly genetic reasons for that. You know, there may be environmental reasons for that as well. But there's, we need to be able to cater to all of those needs, uh, with just there's this fundamental commitment to goodwill and equality, without being panicked that we'll find stuff that just blows everything up. But on the left, there there's the sense that the only way to move forward toward equality is to lie about what is scientifically plausible and demonize anyone who won't lie with you. Mm. That's the ideological point there earlier. This is a new thing, though, right? I mean, relatively speaking, this this hard-nosed stance from the left of the equality of outcome and and the only reason why there wouldn't be 50% women or 50% black or 50% any, you just pick any marginalized group. The right. only reason why it wouldn't be even across the board with all other races is because of discrimination. This is a fairly new stance. Well, I mean, there were, there were moments that were fairly well publicized that, uh, I don't forget when Larry Summers got fired from Harvard. So Larry Summers was the president of Harvard, and he's a famous economist. Uh, and he gave a speech for which he was fired. Uh, there might be a little more color as to why he was fired. I mean, he was, he was more fired because he he once the, the wheels started to come off, he didn't he had alienated enough people that he didn't have friends to kind of prop him up. But but the thing that pulled the wheels off was that he gave a speech and he said, "We know there are are differences in 
in the, the bell curves that describe you know, mathematical aptitude between men and women. And this explains why there are many more top-flight male mathematicians and engineers than women. And it's not that they even – it's not that the, uh, the means of the, uh, the, 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 of the bell curves are different – so the, the means could be the same, but there could be more variance so that the tails are thicker in the case of, of the male bell curve. So at the, at the absolute ends, both the, 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 the low end and the high end, you have many more people. So, you know, if you're, if you're going to ask, you know, what's the – in the same size population, uh, how many people do you have at the 99.999 percentile of aptitude in math, say? It could be that you have – and there's, there's a fair amount of data to show this – Many more men at the tails than women, right? And and that's true for grandmasters in chess, right? It's just it's just this is not a, uh, and it may be true for something like you know playing pool. You know, I mean, there there are just differences and that may not be entirely environmental. Almost certainly are not entirely environmental. Uh, that is one. Right, it's a it's a yeah. big issue in the the world of pool. Men and women play yeah. separately, and there's no reason physically why they shouldn't. Yeah, they're not. It's not a strength game, right? Yeah. But mm. women are allowed to play in men's tournaments, but they never win. Right. Uh, Jean Belukas was a woman who's uh, she was like one of the only women to ever compete and beat men. She's like an extreme outlier, and this was like. I want to say it was in the late 70s or the 80s. And, mm. and other than that, there's been a few women that have done well in tournaments, but when they come to major league professional pool tournaments, they're almost always won by men. I'm, and I'm, when I say almost, I mean like 99.9%. So yeah. there was a uh, Commonwealth Games have been happening as we, it was just over the last couple of weeks, and there was a male-to-female transgendered athlete in the weightlifting category. Yeah, that's a whole other yeah. ball. Who participated... Yeah in the women's competition yes. and the Commonwealth Games at the time of her joining hadn't yet put down a rule as to testosterone levels in the females competing and so this male to female transgendered person qualified in the female games and was as you'd expect um, winning in all of the games and was the front runner and destined to win the competition as a male to female transgendered person. And the only reason, and it would have led to a huge crisis in the Commonwealth Games because there was some resistance to this notion. Um, and of course, the questions that arise, is this fair? Um, men are born naturally with higher levels of testosterone, for example. The only reason it didn't lead to, to crunch time, and that was the huge scandal of, of, uh, of her winning, is that she injured herself in the competition and well, by sheer accident. Yeah, I, I saw mm. that. Well, I, I can expand on that a little bit because I've actually gone through this extensively mm. because there was a woman who was uh, used to be a man, was competing in mixed martial arts against women and just beating the shit out of them. Mm. And, I, and I was saying... Mm. This is this is a mistake, mm. and that you're you're looking at so, whether someone should be legally able to identify as a woman, portray themselves as a woman. Absolutely, yeah. do you have the freedom to become a woman in quotes in our society? Yes, but you can't deny biological nature, and there's physiological advantages to the male frame. Mm. There's it's specifically when it comes to combat sports. That's my wheelhouse. I'm an yeah. expert. I understand there's a giant difference between the amount of power that a man and a woman can generate. Mm. And if you're telling me that a guy living 30 years of his life as a man, that's, that's essentially like a woman being on steroids for 30 years, mm. then getting off and then having regular women being forced to compete with her mm. and trying to pretend this is a level playing field. It mm. is not. Mm. There's a difference yeah. in the shape of the hips, the size of the shoulder, the density of the bones, the size of the fists. Yeah. 
when, that's a giant factor yeah. in your ability to generate yeah. power is the mm. size of your fists. It's and also an ethical problem. I mean, it's not it's just competition problem. here. So you have you know girls getting beaten up by someone who used to be a man. Yes, but he, yeah. but people came down on me harder than anything that I've ever stood up for in my mm. life. Right. Never in my life did I think there was going to be a situation where I said, hey, I don't think a guy should be able to get his penis removed and beat the mm. shit out of women. And then people are right. like, you're out of line. But that's yeah. literally, that's literally what the summary of the situation. That's literally yeah. what happened. This yeah. is a conversation that I had with a woman uh, online. This is one, one during this whole thing. Uh, she said she this person who had turned into a woman has always been a woman. And I said, but she was a man for thirty years. She goes, no, yeah. she's always been a woman. I go, even when she had sex with a woman and fathered a kid. And she says, yes, mm. even then. I go, well, we're done because yeah. you're just talking nonsense. Yeah. Yeah, that's this I, that's, ideology, can, that's ideology. ideology covering exactly. the, the facts as they are. Well, is that she had a male physique. She, a this male person body. who's arguing with me wants to claim this moral high ground of being the most progressive. Mm. And they're always mm. looking to step on top of anybody who's less progressive than them and, complain, and, and proclaim superiority. And this is the ideological sport. Mm. This is the idea sport that, that you see with, when people are playing just ping pong with yeah. our Ideas. They're not listening. Yeah. You, you you need to listen to experts in in the when you especially when you're talking about martial arts. Yeah. There's a the, the the difference is so profound yeah. and the results are so critical because you're talking about a sport where the objective goal the the goal is clear. It's very clear. Beat the fuck out of yeah. the other person in front of you. Yeah. So anything that would give you an advantage in beating the fuck out of that person should be really looked at very carefully and yeah. not th thrown through the, the lens of this progressive ideological filter that we're going through right now. Because that's, that's what it is. I mean, that's how people are looking at it. Mm. And it's with weightlifting as well. When transgendered athletes going to weightlifting competitions, the male to female transgender athletes are overwhelmingly dominant. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, is this is this a coincidence yeah. or is no? It's someone who had fucking testosterone pumping through their system and and a Y chromosome mm. their whole life. Yeah. And now all of a sudden we're supposed to say no, she's a woman, she's a she's dainty. She's got size 14 feet. <laughs> she's got gorilla hands. Like so what no, in the fuck are so, we doing so, here? So I think as you said earlier, it's she is a woman, but to, for for the purposes of competition yes. against other women, you know, legally she's a woman at that stage right. if she goes through that identity transition. But I think we have to recognize and I think even many traditional feminists are making this point yes. much to the anger of the trans community. They're saying, "Hold on, you're, what you're doing in this way is actually we fought so hard and so long for these female spaces where we have a space of our own. And yes. now people that used to be men are coming into those spaces and actually quite literally beating the crap out of us in yes. those spaces. Yes. You know, whether it's in boxing, uh, whether it's in uh, weightlifting, in martial arts, they are. Uh, by definition, they're dominating all this. Of course they are, for, for the reasons you said. And the experts that they're calling upon are almost all transitioned doctors, surgeons, or, or people that have transitioned themselves. Mm. When they speak to actual board-certified endocrinologists, and some of them only do it off-record, mm. but one of them... Um, I forget her name. She was in one of the big mixed martial arts publications. Uh, Ramona Krutzek, I believe is her name. She's saying, like, no, not only does it... It, it actually, doing this transition, like from male to female, you're forcing, you're, you're, you're putting estrogen into the system. So the bone density change that would ordinarily take place if you remove someone's testicles and stop the, mm -hmm. the production of testosterone, 
estrogen preserves bone density. So you're actually retaining right. the huh. male bone density. There's yeah. so many mm. problems with yeah. this. And the, the, and the, the, one of the other things they say, well, oh, the Olympics, the Olympics allow it. The Olympics are very ideologically mm. based. There's not a whole lot of science to this, tr this transition thing of allowing male to female athletes to compete in the Olympics. And there's an extreme amount of corruption in the Olympics as it is with the IOC being in bed with WADA, the World mm -hmm. Anti-Doping Agency, and the way they handle this Russian scandal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, this Russian scandal that was highlighted in that fantastic documentary, Icarus. Yeah, that was like, good. Yeah. Th fucking crazy. Yeah. The, the Olympics are not to be trusted. That is a gigantic, multi-billion dollar business where the athletes get paid zero money. Mm -hmm. It is right. inherently corrupt from the top down. No doubt about it. So to, to call upon them is to see who should be competing as a woman. Fuck off. They, they, they're not the experts. This is, this is not something that's been examined. And this is coming from someone who one of my jobs is examining and commentating on fights. That is a big part of what I do. I understand fights. And I know what it looks like when a man's beating the shit out of a woman. And that's what it looked like when this person was fighting women. It was, there was a massive physical advantage. Massive. And what, not a skill the, advantage. What, what was the re You mentioned something about the reaction that you got to that. What was the trouble you got into? Oh, people were so mad at me. I mean, mm. it was just so many. Not only that, they took my words out of context. They quoted uh, all these different... Uh, gender transition doctors and saying that there's no science behind this and the science behind it being totally fair and totally equal. It's just not. And people know it. Everyone knows it. They, could, they couldn't put Chris Cyborg against this guy and give him a run for his money? <laughs> <laughs> the wrong well, weight class? Or? That's the other way. Uh -huh. That's the other thing. And we're dealing with a similar situation like that in Texas. I don't know if you know about the girl who was, she was born a girl. She's transitioning to a boy in high school, mm -hmm. taking testosterone. But in Texas, they only allow her to compete as a girl. So she's dominated the oh, Texas no. State Wrestling Championship two years in a row. Wow. And it's horrific because she's on steroids. She's on testosterone. And they usually he test for this kind of stuff. Doesn't matter because they're because testing chromosomal. The yeah. yeah, she's a woman. She was yeah. born a woman, right? She's born a girl. So because of the fact that she's transitioning to be a boy, they don't give a shit. You're a woman. You're not going to wrestle against mm -hmm. men. You're a girl. You're not going to wrestle, wrestle against boys. So they have allowed her under extreme protest. I mean, it's terrible. She wants to compete or he, I should say, wants to compete as a boy, yeah. they won't let him. They mm. say, no, you were born a girl, you have to compete as a girl. So when he competes, everybody boos. It's awful. Uh, it's fucking uh, awful. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's really and devastating. So that, that question for you, that way around, if it's female to male transition, uh, uh, somebody that used to be a woman that transitions to a man and wants to compete with the men, they don't have an advantage, they do they? They don't. No, if they they're don't allowed to compete They're at a with disadvantage. Them. So if they win in that context, they've yes. actually done really good. Yes. Right. And so, it's possible. Look, women can beat men. Yeah. I mean, it happens all the time in jiu-jitsu. Yeah. There's, especially in jiu-jitsu in particular, because it's such a technique-based mm. art. Mm. Mm. Uh, but it is possible. There's a, there's also a woman named Jermaine Durandamy, who's a world-class mixed martial artist, who's mm. multiple-time world Muay Thai champion who fought a man and knocked him out. It's a mm. crazy video. Mm. Oh, nice. She fought a real that. man. Yeah. KO'd him with a straight right. Yeah. It's it is possible for them to win if their skill level is so far superior yeah. that it overcomes the inherent strength advantages. Yeah. But a woman to male transition would be at a severe disadvantage against a natural male. So would you be so in that Texas case, they clearly have it wrong. They yes. should allow they should allow him to, to compete with the yes. men. And would you be whereas I can th I think all three of us probably instinctively would resist the notion that a female uh, that a male to female athlete competes with other females because they'd have an advantage. I would resist that, yes. But would you be for a female to male athlete competing with men? 
Yes, yeah. because I don't think there's an there's advantage. No, yeah. There's no yeah, advantage. Yeah. But here's the problem. And the, and the, and the consent is sort of running in the other yes. direction yes. there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She, yes. she is continually putting herself or he is putting her, himself right. in yeah. harm's I, way yeah. knowingly. Yeah. 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 And I'm not opposed to a woman fighting a man if mm. she so chooses. Yeah. Like, I'm not opposed to bull riding. Yeah. If right. you want to, I'm not you know, lobbying to get bull riding outlawed. But if you want to be so fucking stupid that you climb on top of a 2,000 pound angry animal, mm. go for it. Yeah, right. You should be able to do whatever you want. I think you should be able to jump out of fairly good air airplanes. Yeah. Mm. You know, if you want to parachute, you should be able to risk your life parachuting. Yeah. The difference lies in just massive advantages. Yeah, and yeah. The, there's a massive advantage in transitioning from male to female. Yeah. Female to male, here's the other problem. Female to male, you have to take testosterone. You can't legally take testosterone yeah. and compete. It's been yeah. a, a giant issue in mixed martial arts because for the longest time there was a loophole. And the loophole was testosterone therapy. And they were allowing testosterone replacement therapy for male athletes that were either older or it's it was a... It, it was a a symptom of having pituitary gland damage, yeah. which comes from head trauma, which come, which means really essentially your career should be over. Yeah. Your, your body's not producing hormones yeah. correctly. And that's a very common issue with people that have been in war, people that have been blown up by IEDs, people that have been hit a lot, even soccer players wow. a lot of times yeah. show uh, diminished levels of testosterone and growth hormone because of pituitary gland damage. So you wouldn't even allow that. So a, a female to male would be in a whole nother problem in combat sports because it's not legal for you to take testosterone and compete. Mm, mm, mm. Right. Well, to bring this full circle back to me sitting at the pool destroy, about to destroy my vacation on Twitter. <laughs> so how long uh, did you spend working on this article? <laughs> well, no, the thing is, so again, this was... This Your was wife like a, must have hated oh, you, yeah. man. Oh, yeah. how, how, how much was she mad? <laughs> um, well, it, it, it was kind of the perfect storm, but there were there were a few things that... that um, Relieve the pressure. One is there was another family from our school, so that like my, my daughter had a friend. There was oh, another couple that's that, nice. that we that my wife could socialize with, and having another couple there forced me to sort of put on my social face at dinner. And and, and it, I mean, well, you're that's itching not, to look at your yeah, tweet. But, it, but the thing is, it's actually <laughs> yeah, that, not that feeling. is horrible. Yeah, yeah. No, I don't no, really no. want to be here. I want no, to look at my. No. That's so horrible. But it's. I mean, it's, it's not. I mean, to, <laughs> to, to say it, to describe it that way, putting it on your social face, it, it actually changes your psychology. I mean, like if you have if you if you have to drop your problem in yeah. order to be a normal, sane person with people you don't know all that well, you're actually a happier, more normal person. If it had just been me and my wife at dinner while I'm dealing with this blow up, I, it just you know it just never would have the cloud wouldn't wouldn't have left. So anyway, um, I uh, I was trying so I was trying not to engage, and so I didn't want to have to write anything new to deal with this this, this what I viewed as just an egregious attack on on my intellectual and moral integrity. Um, and so when I saw this article from Klein. Um, I realized I had this email exchange with him at the end of which I said, listen, if you if you continue to slander me, this is, that had been like a year mm. previously. because there had the been exchange this, he released? Uh, I, I released you this. Released it, right, released. Okay, so, yeah, yeah. So, so I said, but I said at the end of this exchange, if you continue to slander me and if you misrepresent the reasons why we didn't do a podcast, because we, uh, we had, had talked publicly about maybe sorting this out on a podcast – a year ago, but I, I found the exchange with him by email so in such bad faith. I found him so evasive and dishonest, and again, you know, just plain ideological ping pong, as you said, uh, and not actually engaging my points. Um, that I said, listen, if you if you lie about this and you keep slandering me, I'm just going to publish this email because because I think the world should see how you operate as a journalist and as an editor. Uh, like he had he had declined to publish a 
far more mainstream opinion defending me and Murray in, in Vox. I mean, he, it was just, it was, it, was, it was truly, you know, slanderous and misleading, everything he's published on this topic. And he has a huge platform to, to, by which to do it. So, which I enjoy. I really yeah. like Vox. Oh, yeah, no, I mean, if I, I've, I've read Vox with pleasure as well. But it, it is, it, it, you know, once you see how the sausage gets made on many of these things, <laughs> once, once you're the news item, yeah. you can yeah. see that there's very little journalistic scruple in the, in the background there. So I, um, I, was, I, mean, I didn't want to have to spend my time on vacation writing a retort to this thing, but I felt like I had to respond. And again, this is an illusion. This is like a sheer confection of looking at Twitter. If I hadn't been looking at Twitter, I wouldn't have felt I had to respond. <laughs> um, and so I responded in the laziest possible way, which I just, I just published the email exchange because it's already written. I don't have to write anything yeah. new. I just, like, just hit send, essentially. And of course, the rest of the world didn't know you're actually meant to be on vacation right now. And so there's no context to them as to why you did and, this, but, but, made but, this but, decision but worse, or that decision. Worse still, I, I, I massively underestimated the amount of work even my own fans would have to do to understand why I was so angry in that email exchange. So I came <laughs> off like the angry bastard in the email exchange. And he came off as this, you know, just open-minded, ready-to-dialogue guy, whereas if you follow the plot and you saw what he had published about me and, and, and Murray previously, this thing that has hit is now on the hate watch yeah, page yeah. of SPLC – um, he was being totally disingenuous and evasive and just I His mean, responses, just if I remember, they yeah. didn't match to his article, did they? Not, not yeah. at all. And yeah, that, it, I think that it, was the thing. Yeah. It, it was so, so I just kept getting more tuned up. And, and so I published this thing not realizing – I mean, I, you know, it was definitely a mistake to publish the email exchange, just, just pragmatically. Not, yeah. I, I, don't th I don't think it was unethical uh, because I told him I was going to do it in advance um, if he kept, uh, kept it up. It was just uh, – it was totally counterproductive because it was... Because he was far more reasonable people, in the email exchange than the original article. Well, it I seems mean, like he had to do a lot of work to understand. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and he yeah. Was, it, but, it, but he, the thing is, he wasn't. It was pseudo... He was, it was, it was a, a, an appearance of, of yeah, reason, yeah, but yeah. It, was, it was not. And then, so we finally did this podcast um, uh, a year hence. You know, this is now... This is my last podcast. This is now, you know, two weeks ago. And, uh, you know, it was basically as bad as I was expecting... Uh, and I basic I feel that I met the person who I thought I was dealing with in the email exchange, uh, and he was fundamentally unresponsive to any of my points. And you know, as you say, Joe, just trying to score political points to his toward his audience. Yeah. And the thing is, he has a, what's what, I mean, there's many there are many asymmetries here, but one crucial one is that he has an audience that doesn't care about whether or not he's responsive. To the thing that his his opponent or interlocutor just said, right? Mm. It's they're not tracking it uh, by that metric. They're tracking it by are you making the political points are you winning, that, that are winning. echoing that yeah. that are that are massaging that you know outraged part of our brains? Like, are, are, do you have your hands on our amygdala, you know? And yeah. and are you pushing the right buttons? And so he's talking about racism and you know just the you know, white privilege, and I'm granting him all of that. I'm saying, listen, like. Let me tell you why that's not relevant to, to my concerns and what happened here with Murray. I'm, not, I'm gonna, I'm, everything you're going to say about the history of lynching, I'm going to grant you, right? That's not the – we don't – there's no daylight between us there. And – but the thing is I have an audience that is – that cares massively about following the logic of a conversation. And if <laughs> yes. somebody makes a point so that is even <laughs> close 
to being good in response to me, my audience is like, you know, okay, Sam, what the fuck are you going to say to that? Yes. Right? And, if I, and yeah. if I drop that ball, I, I lose massive points, right? Yeah. Whereas I'm often finding myself in conversation with people who don't have to care about those kinds of audiences. I mean, that's right. the, that was the one I had one with this uh, Omar Aziz, the, oh, the, 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 the title of the best podcast ever. I mean, he knows his audience does not care about him honestly representing in this case, the doctrine of Islam. But who or, was yeah. that guy even? I mean, at least Ezra Klein, you could say, yeah. okay, editor of Vox or whatever. Where did you even find that guy? Uh, on Twitter. On Twitter. That's, <laughs> this, again, the Twitter is like the, the ruination of He granted a platform on his podcast. Yeah. Until this day, I don't even know who this bloke is. Who this guy is. He's some crazy uh, guy. Yeah. Well, I don't he know called me he... an anti What did he call me? Because at one point, he was going on about me being some form of enabler of your bigotry and... Yeah, well, I mean, you're an Uncle Tom yeah, to these guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Native informant or whatever it is. Yeah. But listen, uh, I could, Joe, I could see this is, the, this is why it's so frustrating, because I have pretty much memorized inside out, back to front, the Islamist ideological narrative. And I could sit here right now and play that game with you, uh, the game of ping pong, yeah. without conceding anything. And this is where, you know, I feel our conversation went really well, because it was stripped away from all of that bullshit. And we had a genuine conversation. It's still to this day very easy for me to um, to play the tune um, of the Islamist and score those points, especially because some of what I've been through yeah. um, and, and score those points and just get locked in a, a essentially it's ego. But it's it's a it's 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 not an intellectual conversation. It's a it's it's a game of, you know, who who is who is basically checking the right boxes in their own little confirmation bias to their own audience. That doesn't interest me, but it's frustrating. But you're also you're also the best person on the other side of that conversation now. So there's a series of videos on YouTube. I think it's yeah. called "Merry Christmas, Mr. Mr. Islamist." Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. And so it's just <laughs> it's him, still up on YouTube. You can watch yeah, it. Yeah. Him pitted against the people who are playing this game. You know, Islamists and and jihadists of various sorts. Yeah. You know, and that he Majid is is meeting them on you know interview shows, mostly in the UK where they're pretending to be more benign than they are. And, that, and Majid is, you know, finding the question that sort of you know, pulls back the mask on the theocrat, and it's, it's hilarious. It's, it's yeah. very funny. Well, yeah. you're, that one video that you published on your blog, I've sent to dozens of my friends. That one video where there's this guy and he's addressing this enormous group of people and he's talking about oh, is this radical Islam or is this Islam? That that was I think a, a conference in Norway. Yeah, uh, that was just I mean these Stunning. are just straight up yeah. Islamists and jihadists yeah. addressing yeah. a crowd of seemingly mainstream Muslims yeah. in Norway. And but he just by by a show of hands, yeah. you know, is it you know are we extremists if we think apostates yeah, yeah. should I've be seen killed? That video. It's video, it's yeah. pretty. It's stunning. It's an amazing document. And yeah. yeah, in respect to the way they want to treat homosexuals, apostates. I mean, the the whole thing is: is this Islam or is this radical Islam? Well, this talking is Islam. of talking of ideology blinkering statistical data um, on the subject of homosexuality. So, in the United Kingdom, a, a poll was done last year asking. Uh, so there have been two polls gauging public Muslim attitudes towards gays. Uh, the first asked um, how many Muslims in the UK find homosexuality morally acceptable and zero percent. This is, by the way, by a professional polling company. It's not just some student that's devised a poll on Twitter. A professional polling company found that zero percent of British Muslims responded to a poll saying that they found homosexuality morally acceptable. And then a year later, which is now last year, another poll uh, was uh, was conducted. And uh, that was a, an ICM poll asking uh, whether British Muslims, how many British Muslims uh, believe uh, that homosexuality uh, should be criminalized or remain legal. 
And uh, I think it was roughly 52%, 52%, if my memory serves incorrectly, said of British Muslims said that they would uh, wish for homosexuality to be criminalized. And of course, what does criminalization of homosexuality mean under Sharia and uh, traditional Islamic jurisprudence? We know that it's punished by death. So these are these. This is scientific data from gauging, you know, attitudes, British Muslim attitudes towards homosexuality. But the ideological blinkers will will kick in and refuse to see that truth. And these aren't Islamists. Unfortunately, in my dialogue with Sam, we talk about this, that there are the Islamists who want to who actively want to take over a country and enforce their version of Islam. Then there's underneath that there's a, a softer landing of very, very conservative stroke fundamentalist attitudes that unfortunately have become widespread. And here is an example of it that is that is being gauged by scientific polling methodology that tells us there's a problem. And unfortunately, if one were to speak in this way, um, especially in, in Europe, uh, uh, one is received by uh, my own political tribe, and that's liberals, center-left and further. One is uh, met with denial and called a bigot simply for re relaying these facts. A quarter of British Muslims, when asked about the massacre at the Charlie Hebdo offices in Paris, a quarter said that those attacks are justifiable. They sympathize with the attackers as opposed to the victims who were the uh, staff at the Charlie Hebdo offices. So this is what led you to be put on the Southern it's, Poverty yeah. Law Speaking Center. in these terms. And, yeah. and unfortunately, it's, re it's reporting polling data. And yeah. what it does for me is to say, this is why it's so important to address these issues, to have these conversations, uh, to try and empower those Muslim voices that are seeking to challenge this sort of, these sorts of attitudes and, and carve out a space and if if you know if if one can do that with catholicism in europe and and go through a reformation and end up with an enlightenment and end up with secularism in the west um what i often say is american liberals are very happy challenging their own bible belt and yet we have a quran belt within our communities and if i'm attempting to replicate the equivalent of challenging the Bible Belt within Muslim communities, it means addressing these issues. And yet they grant to themselves the right to challenge the Bible Belt within America. And yet if we were to challenge what I call the Quran Belt in Europe, we're suddenly called bigots, um, you know, and Islamophobes. Is this, is this static? Has this been moving? Has it been adjusting and changing? Is there any sort of a recognition that there's an issue with this? So... You know, the emergence of ISIS really did bring it to the fore and it really did quieten some of the voices. It also did increase the hysteria from uh, the far left because they began panicking, thinking, actually, we're going to lose this debate. And that's where I noticed their labeling became even stronger. Mm, really? um, but the emergence of ISIS did wake up a lot of people to, to the challenges we're facing here because so many European born and raised Muslims went over to join ISIS. And of course, think about it in this sense, the most infamous and notorious execution cell that I think were uh, erroneously called the, the, the jihadi Beatles in the press, because actually it really does, uh, it's an insult to the Beatles, but it also diminishes the true horror yeah. of these guys. Yeah. You know, they called him jihadi John. And, but the ISIS executioners, basically, that entire cell of the, the media face of ISIS execution cell were all British Muslims. And that should tell you something, that we've got the and worst terrorist group. Educated. I mean, the, the thing yeah, is, at university graduate, like every variable yeah. that the that the far left wants to marshal to explain this phenomenon, like lack of educational opportunity, lack of economic opportunity, lack of social integration, mental illness. Like you, you can all, you can find people 
who had massive opportunity. I mean, like you were. Well, I mean, you weren't a jihadist, see, but you were an Islamist. But I mean, you're a person who that's right. can basically play any game he wants. I mean, you're, you're like a, he's 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 somebody who back to the he, Superman. Thing. He can run. He can run for <laughs> political <laughs> office. It. He hasn't been elected yet, but he you know he should be. I mean, you're, you're, this is the, the quarterback of the football team in the the, the this context is a candidate for recruitment well, to think, ISIS. Think, think of it this no. way. We've got the, the worst terrorist group in our lifetime. It, one can reasonably say is ISIS. Right? The, the worst terrorist group, at least in living memory, is ISIS. And the worst cell in ISIS, the execution cell, came from a fully developed, for want of a better term, first world country, and that was Britain. And Mohammed Amwazi, the leader of that execution cell, graduated from the University of Westminster, was given, as a young child, was given political asylum by Britain because his family were Kuwaiti and they fled the invasion of Kuwait by Saddam Hussein, the country that the West liberated. And he turned against that country. So he had every reason to like Britain. Britain gave him a home, gave him a actually physically bricks and mortar house, gave his family on social costs. They gave him social housing. They educated him. He graduated from university and they liberated his father's country from an aggressor. And this man turned against this country that helped him and his family and his nation. Was he captured or did he die? Oh, he's he, dead. He, one he one of them has been captured, but uh, he's currently being held in Turkey. Boy, it would, it would be fascinating to listen to his rationale. It's, well, it's not so. That the, the other one, I forgot his name, but he was just interviewed. Interviewed, and, yeah. And you, oh, don't, you don't get a lot out of him. Yeah. <laughs> he was interviewed by yeah. a female Arab journalist. Yeah. Oh. Did you watch that? Yeah, no, that was <laughs> yeah. Yeah, very, yeah, happened, very yeah. sullen yeah. and dismissive character. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Wow. He, he, he refused to talk about much. He said, uh, you know, these are accu accusations and allegations you're making. And uh, I will wait to trial. Uh, in the end, he kind of cut the interview short. He seemed a yeah. little put out that she was uh, a woman. Oh, yeah. yeah. He did. So, so as I'm looking at you now, yeah. imagine she's the interviewer mm -hmm. and, and, and she's asking me questions and I'm looking in this direction, he, 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 in your wow. direction. He literally never laid eyes on her. It was, it was, it was uh, <laughs> yeah. bad, bad NLP. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's so intense. It's such a, like, as you say, radioactive subject, too. It's yeah. just. It's uh, it's just fascinating to watch white liberal progressives just scamper away from this. Well, but the flip of the flip side of the ISIS thing has been the refugee crisis, which yeah. has made, which has really empowered both extremes, frankly, mm. the, mm. The, the far left and the far right. So you have the far yeah. right, obviously, with the wind in their sails, worrying about this influx of of people from the Middle East and and you know and beyond North Africa. Uh, and just the change of, of, of culture in their societies. And a lot of these concerns are plausible, but because only the far right and a few other decent people like Douglas Murray will talk about the plausible concerns, uh, the, the space has just been vacated. So you just have yeah. the, the far right, far, far right populist politics being en enabled. And then you have this delusional open borders left that won't uh, we, yeah, we've got to talk about the yeah, dynamics of the problem. problem I told Sam about this, but it, it bears repeating. Um, I was having a conversation with someone as an executive at YouTube, and I asked them why someone got a community guideline strike on their account because they posted up a video on their playlist that they enjoyed of Sam Harris and Douglas Murray engaged in a conversation. I'm like, I go, why mm. would that get you a community guideline strike? And this woman said, because it's hate speech. I got a problem with the last this name Murray, some, apparently. I got Charles Murray that, and Douglas Murray causing me problems. <laughs> this is somebody who worked at YouTube. Yes, she was a big executive at, wow. at YouTube. 
she said it's hate speech and I, I told her I go did you listen to it I go you didn't listen to it I go this is stunning that you would just say it's hate speech wow. that you would just be so dismissive of it so quickly yeah. and she talked to me as if I was her employee yeah. like I was not allowed to question her and she yeah. was just going to say what she said and yeah, I was going to yeah. shut up <clears throat> and it was a fascinating conversation was this here on your that. show no this is in no, Hawaii it, on vacation no but wow. it was I, I did a podcast with Douglas and apparently it got flagged Someone else put it up on their account and it got flagged as hate speech. And so well, as a community well, so, guideline so, strikes, so you can get your yeah. account removed. Well, so I've, I've got a phrase for this and I've been, I've been rallying for it on, on social media for a, a couple of months now. And I call it a, a, a digital blind spot. There's a cultural bias on social media um, where because of – and it's intellectually lazy. Because, because social media is essentially a Californian invention, right? Um, and we're in the home state of where most of this came from. Um, it, it's got a very Californian-based worldview, which cares a lot about white supremacy and doesn't care about m many other forms of bigotry that exist out there in the rest of the world, which, by the way, is the majority of the world. So on Twitter right now, of course, there's um, Milo Yiannopoulos has been banned. Tommy Robinson has been banned, as in taken off. Now, Twitter's a private company. Tommy Robinson? He's the former leader of the British English Defence League, um, which was at one time Europe's largest anti-Muslim street protest group. I helped him leave that organization. He's still got many views I completely disagree with. But nevertheless, he doesn't support or nor advocate for terrorism. Why was he removed? Well, so Twi Twitter is a private company. It can choose to remove whoever it wants for whatever reason, and we will judge it for its inconsistencies. But he was ostensibly removed for hate speech, as was Milo Yiannopoulos. Now, the point being that still, till this day, and uh, before people misquote me and completely say that I'm now defending um, hate speech and, and, it's, uh, and their right to speak with hateful views on Twitter, this is my actual point, that till this day, did you know <laughs> that Hezbollah, which is a known and recognized terrorist organization. So forget hate speech for a moment. A terrorist organization that believes in actually killing civilians. Um, and Hamas, a known and recognized terrorist organization that believes in bombing babies on buses as a form of resistance. They still have accounts on Twitter. Um, mm. and, and, and my point is, this is the, this is the, this is the blind spot, you know? The, and, and I've flagged Twitter about this on many an occasion. This is the cultural blind spot. This is the digital blind spot that the, the, the dude sitting in California in wherever who is monitoring this stuff and it's probably more than one person. They don't give a shit that there's some brown person in the Gaza Strip that believes it's OK to kill Jewish babies. They don't give a shit because it's a brown person saying it in the name of Islam. What they care about is a nonviolent yet says stupid things guy because he's white called Tommy Robinson in England or Milo Yiannopoulos saying stuff that they obviously that touches their sensitivities and it's so intellectually lazy to flag that immediately and to bar it from social media because you're comfortable with it you recognize white supremacy it doesn't take any effort to recognize it you don't have to invest in studying this stuff to know what white supremacy is it takes a bit of effort to study brown people's ideas yeah. that you're unfamiliar with and recognize here's a terrorist organization that's freely operating on social media i know specifically on twitter i've actually pulled up their handles I think mm. one of the concerns that Twitter has, and I think this is a valid concern, is that when you have people that are saying hateful things and you have people that are saying whether it's white supremacy or whatever, even mm. if it's stupid, yeah. the problem is there's a rallying cry of trolls that follow behind them and it builds up momentum and yeah. it gets pretty stunning. Yeah. And that was what was happening with Milo. Yeah. Mm. And by silencing Milo off Twitter, they have essentially removed him from the public discourse. You yeah. don't hear about him yeah, anymore. That's right. Because right. of this. 
because of these yeah. things. Right. But imagine what that does in Arabic with the terrorist groups. Yes. Like there's, there, everything you've just said, by the way, I agree with. And multiply that for groups that have infrastructure in multiple countries with actual organizational hierarchies and planned means of distrib distributing their ideas across entire populations, physically fighting in wars right now, such as Hezbollah in Syria, killing Sunni Muslim rebels, you know? Mm. And so imagine that and the, and the way you're able to rally a mob in Pakistan on blasphemy as an example. All it takes for some person on social media to accuse another person of blasphemy and they're probably gonna get killed the very next day. Right. And it happens all the time. But but because these Californian based social media companies are unaware of of the of the cultural implications of those sorts of organizations and groups and listed terrorist groups, mind you, they are there's completely no no barring on any of their activity. There's also the same thing that you have with YouTube and with a lot of these other social media organizations and companies is they don't have to respond or give you any reasons yeah. they can say it violates our terms but what mm. are those terms those terms aren't even listed it would be vague like yeah. no hate speech okay well what's hate speech like yeah. what what are you saying like mm. what is what are you what is your clear policy what are your guidelines how does someone avoid violating your guidelines they don't say yeah mm. and how is the president of the united states not not violating those, those yeah terms, you know? well, well demonetization yeah. is yeah. another way that yeah. they do it they'll remove the ability to put advertising on on a, on a conversation that they don't like and it doesn't right. have to be like my conversation with douglas murray was demonetized, demonetized. without any explanation none zero it's they don't amazing. have to D douglas is He's talking. So he's clearly flagged on their. Uh, he's oh, one hundred percent. Yeah. 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 But if you listen to our act, the actual context of our conversation, there was nothing even remotely, remotely hateful about yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I mean, these are private companies. They've got the right to, to choose whatever policy. The only thing I would expect from a private company is show a consistent policy towards these things. You know, if you don't like hate speech, then brown ban brown people who are also advocating more than just the hate speech, but actually preaching violent terrorism. Right. Right. Yeah, it's a strange time for this man because it's it's also a, a time where it's you can communicate so instantaneously. It's fantastic in that regard. You can get ideas out so quickly. But these hubs of information, like where the information gets distributed, are they're controlled by people that I don't think ever knew that they were going to have this sort of responsibility. I don't think I think you're seeing that with Zuckerberg and these trials yeah. or the the the, um, the speeches that he's given in front yeah. of Congress. Like when you see him on television talking about it, you get the sense that this is a guy that never prepared for this, had no idea this was going to happen, and then all of a sudden from this simple social media platform that was supposed to be friends sharing photos yeah. and just talking about girls. Yeah, nonsense. It was set up to pull, yeah. pull women. There was a lot of that, you know, yeah. Yeah. but I mean, tw and what was Twitter? I mean, Twitter was essentially just, you know, uh, I mean, do you remember the old days of Twitter? It would be, you would use your name, like, is doing this, like Sam, under Sam mm -hmm. Harris, like Sam Harris is at the movies. You would say that almost yeah. if you were in a third person. Yeah. That right. was the original form huh. that people would use I, Twitter. I come after that. Yeah. Yeah, it was weird. It was a weird way yeah. of talking. And then <laughs> people started just writing what they thought. Yeah. And it just became, and then became ideology. And then it became uh, sharing links. Sharing links and interesting articles is a big part of it. But these, I mean, that, the, to me, that's the only good part of it now. Like I, yes. I like uh, I've just discovered that, and that was that's most of my attachment to it. I mean, I I, I genuinely use it to as a, as, 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 yeah. as a curated yeah. newsfeed because yeah. I follow interesting people. They they tweet interesting stuff, and I and I consume it that way. But noticing what's coming back at me in the at mentions, I, I put something out, you know, a, a podcast, 
and then I look to see how it's being received on Twitter. And I don't tend to do that in other forums. I don't really look at Facebook comments much. I don't look at YouTube. I mean, YouTube is just a cesspool, right? I mean, so so even if they're for you, the, the comments are horrible. Uh, uh, Why is that? I, I don't know. It's a very it started it's a strange on YouTube, phenomenon. I think. Yeah. By the yeah. way, yeah. nastiness started on the YouTube comment threads, it, it's, it's, and then uh, spread everywhere else. It's very strange. But so I. But one thing I found that you you can change the, your settings in Twitter where you you uh, screen out people who don't have uh, have just have Twitter egg photos. They don't have a real photo. You can screen out people who haven't had their email confirmed. And I think I just did those two things, and like 90% of the hate went away. It was amazing. Yeah. Like it, 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 the Just, just doing are. that just yeah. was an That's amazing filter. That's what I should do, Sam. Thank you for you, that. You should yeah. do that, except I'm, I think it's better to not actually even look at, at uh, what's coming back at you. Well, yeah. you've taken it yeah. off your phone now. I yeah, think so nice. too. I yeah. think looking looking at it, my, it's my, just too my, risky. My, my wife Rachel would be very happy with that, and she, she, I think she'd probably wish that I did the same. Do you thing. do you tweak on it too? Do you read well, things? Well, and get I, angry? I'm, I'm, I don't I don't react sometimes. I, mean, I like to think I don't react in this way, but I mean I, I can't I can't say that because actually probably I have sometimes. Um, but but you know I get all that same kind of I get it's in, interesting because I took I took a stance on the Syria strikes, and uh, what was your stance? Well, I just think that. Um, uh, uh, especially now in hindsight, where there are no, no casualties involved at all, there are only three injuries. I think we had to take a stance that uh, uh, succeeded where Obama failed in in making sure that red line was maintained, that the use of chemical weapons cannot be tolerated, even if it was symbolic, even if it was highly symbolic. I think sometimes symbolism is important. So I took that stance, and uh, it, it was got, in- got a lot of love on Twitter. Well, yeah, of course, because it's actually that's against the grain. Uh, public opinion at the moment is, is was against the strikes, and I fully acknowledge that when I took the stance. Right. Um, but I argued a case, and I set the case out, and both on my um, Sky News show, I have a show, um, a co-host on the Pledge, and also on my radio show on LBC, I repeatedly argued for why I think it's important that we don't allow for chemical weapons and their use to become normalized in our world, um, and so. It was interesting because I posted the Sky News clip of me sort of talking to camera about my reasons for this. And, and, and uh, I have this um, screen grab of the reaction. It's, <laughs> it's actually hilarious. It's just a, just a puddle of blood. So it's, it, it, is, it is the two extremes. Compi- they, they actually started oh. fighting with each other about oh, who's great. right about yeah. their. So I've said, look, here's a clip. Why we must intervene in Syria after that chemical attack, blah, blah. The first one is a guy with an actual swastika Nazi symbol on his profile. Is, is, oh, wonderful. Um, and it says, you know, at Nordic Scott is his handle, Thomas James. He says, Majid wants Britain to intervene in Syria because Putin and Assad are kicking his ISIS buddies' asses. End of story. Right. So there's a guy who's basically saying, my real reason for calling for that is because I'm supporting ISIS against the Assad regime. Mm. The guy immediately after <laughs> responds to him and it's called at Lazdo. Right? And he says... What are you on about, you Nazi dumbass? Majid is funded by your lot. He's a far-right Uncle Tom. <laughs> so they're fighting that with each awesome. other. Yeah. They're actually, no, this is, a, is that on, on your, ca- I don't know if that captures that, but they're arguing with each other over whether I'm in their ca- his camp or his camp. Oh, wow. And it's Fantastic. the far right and the far left, you, basically. You, you either know. have the worst publicist in the world or the best one. So I, should, I think I should take myself out of that equation and let them fight each other. It would be even better, really. Yeah, that's the move. Yeah. <laughs> to set something like that up, set the far right and the far left against each other, and you could just like, like sneak away while they're fighting. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But that—that—that's oh. how nuts it is. I mean, the, the, the that's kind Twitter of, kind of horseshoe that was on Twitter. Theory, you know, yeah. Yeah. the extremes are. are um, uh, I mean, they're equally irrational, and the fact that you could be at the epicenter of of each problem, both of their problems. Yeah, you know, that you're you're a, a covert jihadist and you're an anti-Muslim bigot. 
It seems like there's more conspiracy theories in in terms of like what someone's actual motivation for what they're saying now than ever before, too, because it's so easy to express them. So someone could say, no, you know, he's far right or no, you're 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 just trying to support ISIS. Yeah. Like this. This is this ability to like find some nefarious reason for your actions. Well, again, it's reducing one's opinion to the lowest. Yes. Base, you know, um, dodgy motive as opposed to applying the principle of charity. So if Joe says something now, I I can either sit here and actually think, no, I don't trust this guy. I don't respect him. And therefore, I'm going to reduce his opinion to the worst possible interpretation that he could possibly mean and then use that against him. Or I could continue to ask what you mean by that, because I'm assuming you're a good, decent human being in origin. And perhaps you mean something that I haven't yet quite grasped and then ask you to clarify your own opinion in your own words. And I think it's unfortunate that many of our conversations today in the far left is as guilty of it as the far right. And they like to think they're not, which is part of that righteousness mm. that blinds them from actually committing this very same injustice they accuse the far right of committing. And that is a uh, it's the same bigotry in, in a mirror image. I call it the bigotry of low expectations, the low expectations they have that Muslims are somehow unable to adhere to common, decent, liberal, secular, democratic values. And so it's actually... Uh, plaguing our conversations today. If only we were able to strip away our ideological baggage in entering conversations and and allow for you know that honest honest conversation. But of course, we say that, and then you try to replicate our success on mm. a number of occasions and found yeah. yourself incredibly yeah. frustrated. Well, you're, you're one of a kind. Guy. Guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's you know, unfortunately, it's, I found the one reasonable person to have a fight with. <laughs> Well, it just seems like this is a side effect of this increased ability to communicate and that just there's so much noise and there's so much going on. I mean, this is the most fantastic time for the distribution of information. There's never been a time where it's so easy to distribute information in human history. It's really crazy, but I don't think we know what to do with it. And I think when you deal with people who have such rigid ideologies and they find this incredibly easy ability to express these ideologies there's just so much clashing yeah. there's just so much yeah, yeah. so much noise and nonsense and when someone says something that they know that they don't have to back up with facts because they know that their their people were on their position will support it you say the right keywords you know white mm. privilege whatever you want to say and then boom you're going to get a whole slew of people like those two people yeah. in your your mentions battling it out with each yeah. other. You're just like kind of picking fights and starting these little fires and yeah. letting other people go to war. You know what I think we've done? And it's, again, the advent of social media is that we, uh, I was speaking uh, with my friend Mark about this, and we've democratized truth. And when you democratize truth in that way, um, the earlier thing you mentioned about sports, combat sports, and your expertise in that field, if I had come back at you and spoke at you with as much authority as you claim in your expertise, with having absolutely no history in that expertise whatsoever, and assumed that I have as equal right to an unresearched claim to truth in my opinion as you do, and who has a lifetime of experience in that field, therein lies a problem that I am arrogating to myself this notion, this, this, this kind of belief that my opinion, though I've, of course I have an equally legal right to express it, but it doesn't mean it carries the same weight as your opinion when it comes to combat sports, and it shouldn't. Unfortunately, I think what's happened with the advent and, of... And, and worse still, you could add, you're expressing that opinion as a person of color or as a, as a Pakistani. <laughs> and as if that or, somehow, you know, yeah. Right, yeah, right, right, yeah. So therefore, yeah. it's uncriticizable by you because it's his truth. Um, otherwise, you're a racist. And yeah. it's my, that's the key word there. It's my truth, yeah. you know? Mm. And so the problem with that is when you relativize truth in that way is that then I can speak to you on, on an equal footing about combat sports 
which only a mad person who hasn't had that history in combat sport would think would arrogate to themselves the right to do so. But social media, I think, has allowed for that to happen. I gave a TED talk in about, I think it was roughly 2011, about the, the dangers of this happening and, and, and social media dividing us all. But I, I'd say now that, that to, if I were to pitch that TED talk today, I did it at, at TED uh, Global. If I were to pitch that TED talk today, it wouldn't mm. be accepted because it's not something new now. It's, it's now people know that how social media mm. has, has divided us. But back then, it was new and innovative enough as an idea for TED Global to say, we want you to speak about this. on, And it's still up online. But if people watched it today, they think, how on earth did that become a TED talk? Um, because there was this heady day uh, back in, you know, five, six, seven years ago, this kind of hope-filled moment where everyone thought Google, Facebook and Twitter and generally social media and also tech companies were like the good guys, that these companies weren't actually companies, that they were on our side against the corporate world. Right. And it turns out, I think we've just hit this moment. You mentioned Zuckerberg. We, I think we've culturally come to this moment now where, you know, I think symbolized by his testimony at Congress, that uh, those that, that, that honeymoon period is over. People now view him, I think, quite firmly and squarely as a CEO of a very rich company, as yes. opposed to a, a guy in my club that I'm friends with who's on my side against the world, you know? And, and that's yeah. how, you know, remember Google used to have that slogan, don't do evil? Yeah, don't do evil, yeah. Presumably they still have it. But, <laughs> no, yes, but the, I mean, the problem is the, the incentives are all wrong. And yeah. I mean, so actually I was just at TED and, well, to give you a sense of how far the rot has spread here. So I, was, I found myself at a dinner sitting next to a, a, a neuroscientist who thought that, and this Ezra Klein thing followed me around to TED and so, because many people had listened to the podcast. And he thought Charles Murray should have been physically attacked at Middlebury. This is a, neuro, this is a neuroscientist, academic, wow. you know, what, you know, like an impeccable person otherwise. I, mean, I think he was, after we wound up having to fight a, a dinner over it, I think he was somewhat chagrined by having expressed that opinion. But, I mean, that's how, how emotionally hijacked people are by Jeez. this issue. And, uh, but it's a, um, that's incredible. I mean, it was just, yeah, it was the, it was, that's the other thing that's new. Wow. This is the other thing that's new. The left advocating for violence. violence. This yeah. is yeah. very new. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I always felt like the, the left yeah. was, uh, nonviolent, the, the, the whole idea behind being progressive, like nonviolence was, was a genuine aspect of that. And free speech was, yeah. was. two things. Two yes. Those down. are two yeah. things that have been sort of stopped. Yeah. That this free speech is fine as long as you're not saying speech that I disagree with. And nonviolence, sure, unless we need to use violence. Which is like, and the people that are saying it, like if you, you watch these Antifa people, like Jesus Christ, the most incompetent, violent people you've ever seen yeah. in your life. Yeah, like, right. it, like, offends, <laughs> it offends your uh, sensibilities as an MMA guy. For a person guy, yeah. who's an expert yeah. in yeah. violence, this is fucking, yeah, you guys are right. terrible at it. There's yeah. videos of these guys practicing. There's right. videos of Antifa. They had they got together and decided to train and prepare for violence. And so oh, they're man. doing these martial <laughs> arts classes. And they have people teaching them like, holy shit. Like uh, the average high school kid could fuck you guys up. Like this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen in my life. Right. But it's almost like they're, they realize that there's n not that much danger in what they're doing. And they can kind of play with danger. Yeah. They can play with violence. They can put the masks on. They're, they, you know, they're not in Israel. They're, they're not at the Gaza Strip. Yeah. Joe, they're a bunch of cowards. Yes. There's, a guy, there's a guy who went to my old university. I graduated from SOAS before I did my master's at the LSE. SOAS has been embroiled in a strike at the moment. The Students' Union has been supporting uh, professors who are on strike. And it's over pension and pension rights and a, a refused government refusing 
to raise their pension rights and whatever. And some of the students came out in strike, far left students defending uh, the professors. And they put, a, they put forward a ring preventing students from attending uh, their classes. And, and, and a, a, a female black lecturer wanted to cross the strike lines to go in to teach her students. A white male uh, public school educated, very, very middle class protester, far left, physically attacked her. He physically attacked a female black professor. So gone is suddenly gone is the white privilege. Gone is the male attacking a female. Mm. You know, gone is all of that. In gone the name, is nonviolence. All the above. In the name of ideology, he uh, uh, legitimized and allowed himself to uh, attack a black female. By the way, oh, and she was also Muslim. So she she went to the press. <laughs> well, like, it's Jesus. hilarious. I would have she thought went, she would have had the right spell to cast. She actually oh, said that in her interview. She said, "I'm a black Muslim female, and this white oh kid has just attacked God. me for yeah. wanting to teach my class." Wow. This is crazy. This is cra- this is a crazy world we're in, man. This is. Do you are you optimistic about the future? <sighs> yeah. <laughs> I say that because it's going to take a lifetime's work, and I don't think that in our lifetime. Um, much is going to change. I think, you know, maybe for the next generation. Uh, what, what, what is the, the picture of, I mean, how do you conceive of your job at the moment and, and what, what is the status quo? I mean, so, so for instance, ISIS, the Islamic State, is sort of fading from most yeah. people's memory now. Yeah. I mean, there's, yeah. you know, uh, even mine, I'm, I'm yeah. spending much less time thinking about it because it seems to have been so, so let me tell you a story. beaten into submission. No, I, can, so. I can answer this question with a story. So Radical, which is my autobiography, has a U.S. publication, right? Um, in the UK, it's Random House Penguin. It's published by the biggest publishing house. Uh, when I came to publish in the US, I approached publishing houses, but it was after Bin Laden was killed. And so when we approached 10, 20, whatever, publishing houses... The problem they, solved? They all said no. They said the problem solved. Yeah. They said, we think, you know, we wish you'd come to us five years earlier, but problem solved now and there's not a problem anymore. And uh, and a bit like what you mentioned is, is sort of your expertise and and I, I have been consumed by this subject all my life and there are a few people on this planet that I would take seriously on this subject um, uh, outside especially of Quilliam and there are other organizations they have some really good people but I know them all and uh, we regularly speak so I, I would say to all these publishing houses I can assure you 100% this problem not only has not been solved, it's going to come back around in a far worse way than you can ever have imagined. This is before ISIS came along. None of them believed me. Of course, what then happened, my, my book eventually got published by some very small publishing house in the US and has done quite well for them. But the point of the story was this ISIS came around and people were suddenly like, oh my God, where did this come from? Of course, those of us who had been monitoring the situation knew this was going to come back around very, very heavy. Now that ISIS has been pushed back, and, and this is where this story is sort of the point of the story is, we've got to resist the temptation to believe the problem has been solved. Because the, the organization known as ISIS, which is an, a bureaucracy, has been fought back. But the ideology upon which that organization was built um, is still very much alive and it's still strong. Um, what Al-Qaeda did while the whole world was focused on ISIS, was exploit uh, that opportunity to rebuild and regroup. And they've been uh, rebuilding in Syria. Now they are stronger than they have ever been, even under bin Laden, because for the first time in the history of that organization, they are firmly embedded within the Syrian population as a genuinely kind of viewed by the people that they were fighting on behalf of as a grassroots resistance organization. Whereas before that, they were seen as a 
a terrorist group that was like a you know just like a vanguard they've embedded themselves in the syrian population in the yemeni uh, civil war they've embedded themselves in north africa east africa and in pakistan and they are resurgent and they are grooming uh, hamza bin laden who is bin laden's son um, and they're grooming him for leadership and and a, and a time will come maybe in a couple of months maybe in a couple of years where they announce hamza bin laden as the new leader of al-qaeda currently it's ayman zawahri when they do that once their grooming has been complete and assuming Hamza isn't killed uh, up until then, all of the um, fragments of what remains of ISIS will probably rejoin Al-Qaeda under Hamza bin Laden and you'll have a stronger than ever before Al-Qaeda organization. And we've got to we've got to remember that we never expected ISIS to emerge. Al-Qaeda will come back with a vengeance. Jesus. Mm. Yeah, wh- yeah. What is the the politics between the remnants of ISIS and Al-Qaeda. Well, Hamza bin Laden's succession to the leadership solves that problem of the, because the ISIS guys um, were originally all Al-Qaeda. ISIS was Al-Qaeda in Syria and they broke away after bin Laden died because they didn't, they had pledged allegiance to bin Laden and the new leader of Al-Qaeda, Ayman Zawahri, is by all accounts a rather uncharismatic and, you know, he's a, he's a pediatrician. He's not really a Kind of Bin Laden had the he's charisma. A pediatrician. Yeah, he's yeah. a pedi- he's Egyptian. Yeah. He's an Egyptian pediatrician from a very well-off Egyptian family, by the way. Wow. Yeah. Um, I think his Just grandfather was the Egyptian ambassador to the UN. Yeah, pharmacists yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Bin Laden clearly had the charisma, the wealth, the presence, the looks. He had all of it. That Zawahri doesn't. Um, Zawahri is, you know, compared to Bin Laden, he just doesn't, you know. So if uh, the guys that broke away from Al Qaeda to form ISIS said to Zawahri, the current leader, "We pledged allegiance to Bin Laden. We owe you nothing. You're not our." Amir, our leader. If Hamza bin Laden comes back into, as the leader of Al-Qaeda, it solves that problem uh, because uh, those remnants of ISIS have a loyalty to the bin Laden name and the bin Laden family. And they remember what they consider their glory days fighting under under bin Laden. Yeah, well, that's that was, not nice to hear. That's no good. No, no. The problem has not gone away. I can tell you that. The problem, and, and, you know, it, the problem is the ideology and it will not be dealt with until we deal with this ideology and it's why it's so dangerous to you know there was this awful term that i railed against it was so frustrating to see under obama's presidency the u.s state department officially adopted as their name for challenging this problem they adopted the term al-qaeda inspired extremism of course it isn't it isn't al-qaeda that it inspired extremism it's extremism that inspired al-qaeda and it's, it's, it's for the purposes of political correctness, you adopt this term in the State Department officially that we're fighting across the world. We are fighting Al-Qaeda inspired extremism. My former organization, Hizb al-Tahrir, a caliphate espousing organization that believes in their ideal caliphate that gays should be killed, adulteresses should be stoned to death. Um, they were there before Al-Qaeda. And this ideology has been there before Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda was one of a long line of groups that came as a result of the Islamist ideology. And we've got to start focusing on the ideology itself, not the physical groups that spring up from it. Because they can change their name. As you point out, there's another layer to the ideology that is is even more well-subscribed that presents social and political problems. So so, as you said, there are conservative Muslims who don't support al-Qaeda. They're not no. jihadists. They, they, can, they would honestly say, bin Laden doesn't represent my yeah. brand of Islam, but these are still people who, uh, will, who will say that homosexuals should be yeah, killed. That's right. so, so it's that's like right. there, there's the, the apparent allies against, quote, extremism can still be people with, so, with, with religiously mandated social attitudes that just are, cannot be assimilated in cosmopolitan societies. Uh, so... People who are 
and uh, I mean, worse, worse than worse than Al Qaeda inspired extremism. There's just this notion that, that on the left, and and this was this came out of Obama's mouth, and it came out of Clinton's mouth, and it's largely why she's wasn't president. Uh, it's not. It's just ex- generic extremism, yeah. right? So that like in the same sentence that you have to worry about uh, the, the caliphate. You have to talk about uh, abortion doctors being killed in the U.S. once every 15 years. So, of course, you remember because President Obama refused to use the word Islamist extremism. Of course, Trump has the other problem. He thinks that by like Rumpelstiltskin, by repeating it enough, you've solved the problem. You know, Mm. but but actually one of the elements in which he was correctly critical of Obama was and I was at the time vocally critical of Obama's reluctance to use the word Islamist extremism. Um, and we've got no problem when we talk about, you know, uh, uh, when we talk about white supremacist ideology, we don't mean that all white people are supremacists. You know, what we, we're doing here is, is actually attributing sp- precisely, specifically what the ideology is and believes in white supremacy. Likewise, Islamist, you know, it, it's important so we can identify that ideology um, still while not calling it Islam. Right. So we're still giving a bit of a, a leeway there for everybody else, all the other Muslims. But to call it Islamist extremism is to recognize that it's an offshoot of Islam. It's a manifestation, extreme or otherwise, of Islam. And thereby, we are acknowledging that its justifications are in Islamic scripture, as well as, of course, a multiplicity of other causes, grievances and what have you. But we cannot ignore that it also rests on justifications that are derived from the Islamic scripture. I mean, I can cite for the Arabic that tells you in the Quran itself to cut the hand of the thief or to lash the adulterer. Um, you know, th- these are, the, or I quote the hadith or the saying of the prophet that says, kill the, the person that changes their religion. This is scripture. Um, and so, of course, there are other factors involved as well. But one of the factors that gives rise to this uh, is the unreformed scripture that these extremists cite. And so we have to acknowledge that Islam has a role to play. Um, I often say that, you know, because again, under the Obama presidency, it was frustrating that the common refrain was to say that Islam, this has nothing to do with Islam. This is absurd as arguing that the Spanish Inquisition had nothing to do with Catholicism. He he went even further at one point, didn't he? At one point say that not only does this have nothing to do with Islam, this has less to do with Islam than any other religion. It was just, he bent over backwards. (laughs) It's like saying the Crusades had nothing to do with Christianity, you know? Oh. Gentlemen, unfortunately, I have to wrap this up. Mm. Oh, um, but uh, a I, I really appreciate you guys coming on. It was Thanks, a Joe. real pr- pleasure. Pleasure, pleasure to meet Thank you. you very much. And your book? It's uh, the, the, the book is Islam and the Future of Tolerance. And uh, actually, we're, we're, the one thing we do have to announce is we're going to Sydney and Auckland. So yeah. two of us and Douglas Murray and both Weinstein brothers. Oh, we're gonna, it's toxic. We're going we're gonna, to yeah. wreck those towns. Oh, my goodness. We're going to have uh, Are you uh, doing a, live podcast? A, a day-long conference. I think you want to use their oh, first name, Sam, because yeah. I think it's Brett not... Brett Merrick? Yeah, Weinstein. Well, no, but, no, but they're, <laughs> not the other one. They're, they're, they're Steins, yeah. not Steens. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's so right. It's okay. Yeah, it's okay. okay. It's okay. No, but it'll be great to get both of them together. That rarely happens. Yeah, those guys are awesome. I'm really grateful to meet both of them and you as well. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Cheers.